Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Ah! Oh! Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast where myself, Garrison Davis, and James Stout just created a new soon-to-be-beloved fiction character, racist <laughs> Sherlock Holmes. And don't worry, we're not done workshopping it. It's not ready to go public yet. But when this bit drops, you people are going to lose your minds. Oh, how's everyone doing today? Much better after learning about racist Sherlock Holmes. Uh huh. After and yeah. no, he we didn't learn about him. He burst fully formed Creator, from our yeah. heads yeah. like <laughs> Athena from the brain of Zeus. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, good stuff. Um, speaking of the Greek and Roman pagan pantheon, James Garrison. You know who mm-hmm. does kind of have the feel of a of an, a malevolent spirit in Greek mythology is Ron DeSantis. Yeah, not wrong. Mm-hmm. Sure. sure. Yeah. Meatball mm-hmm. Ron. Malevolent Ron, that's what they call him. After yeah. all my years study, studying the papyri, this is, I, I can confirm. <laughs> yeah. Meatball Ron. I, I'm gonna, I have a, a long essay on my substack about how Meatball Ron and the Egyptian deity Ma'at are a, uh, are really uh, uh, directly related to one another, um, but that that that'll that'll you can find that on my Substack, uh, my Egyptology focused Substack. Yeah, he's not. Uh, what's his, what's the god of the sun? The the god of the sun disc. 
the one they tried to do a monotheism for. Oh yeah, that isn't that raw. Yeah, that, 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 that one Pharaoh tried to. Sure, it's right. Yeah. yeah, I can see no. DeSantis seeing himself in those terms. No, Maat uh, uh, like I, Ron DeSantis. I, I think DeSantis is, is more of like a Horus figure, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, no, because Ma- Maat. Here's the thing: Maat has wings, uh, and Ron okay. DeSantis is currently flying over us, uh, shading us all in the comfort of his of his mighty Technicolor wingspan. Um, I'm seeing Maat. Maat looks. There's too many colors in these in these in these wings. Like I don't know. I don't know why we got onto a comparing Ron DeSantis to. This was a mistake. Anyway, Garrison, you just last week we closed out on two great episodes about uh, Fash Wave and uh, the adoption uh, and kind of reposting of a lot of these aesthetics that had become popular on the far right um, via you know the the dark Brandon memes. Um, and a big part of that was how Ron DeSantis somehow allowed some incredibly internet poisoned Zoomers to um, make an ad for him that was far too online uh, for a presidential campaign ad. And I felt like it was time to kind of have a discussion about Meatball Ron, because obviously things in Florida are very ugly right now. As a fascist, which he definitely is, Ron DeSantis is an effective administrator, uh, by which I mean he's good at twisting the administrative uh, state that exists into a weapon to attack marginalized groups. He's been effective at that. Um, what's happening legally, you know, in in the laws, you know, the, a lot of the anti-trans laws, the anti-drag laws in Florida is very frightening. What he's been doing to the Florida education system, state education system, is very unsettling. Um, and you know, that is a all of that is worthy of further discussion. But I think because the most immediate concern we have is like. Is this guy going to be able to do that on a national scale, right? Which is not to say that we should just let Florida, you know, uh, sink into the abyss. I don't believe that. But at the moment, Ron DeSantis is tied for second place against Donald Trump. Um, so it kind of it it behooves us to ask the questions purely for the purpose of self defense. Can Ron DeSantis win? Right? Could he actually become? Not even the first question is like, could he become the Republican presidential candidate? Can he beat Donald Trump? Um, and the short good answer to that is, I don't think so. It's not looking good. Not looking yeah. good for old Meatball Ron. Agreed. And I wanted to get into why and kind of some of the fundamental flaws as a as a guy who is there was kind of this belief, fear, I think a reasonable fear among a lot of liberals and folks on the left that because of how effective he's been at consolidating and expanding his power in Florida. Uh, and because he's generally seemed like less of a like Donald Trump has certain competences as an authoritarian. There's things he's very good at, but he was not good at being the president. He was not good at using power. He's he not an effective much, fascist in a lot of ways. He's not an effective fascist, right? Like he wasn't good at picking people to like do things for him. He wasn't good at he was good at hurting people in a blunt way, but he was kind of incompetent at re like an, a competent fascist like Hitler was a competent fascist right he was not in there long in an elected position before he had effectively made it impossible to oust him without military force um and and Trump was never good at doing that stuff and the worry is that Ron DeSantis would be the good news is that Ron DeSantis is incompetent as a politician and a political candidate so I wanted to kind of start with why a lot of his the people who do form his base, which is quite shrinking at the moment, his, he's losing a lot of support. Why they thought he was capable of winning the primary and the general, and when you when you look into kind of why a lot of sort of 
Republican, like legacy Republicans, the folks who often get called rhinos, why a lot of them decided to back uh, Ron DeSantis. The best summary you're going to get comes from Phil Huffines, who is a, a businessman in Texas whose car dealership ran a series of ads that are like plastered forever in the memories of everyone who lived in the DFW area in the late 90s, <laughs> early 2000s. And in a CNN interview a few days ago, he said this. When one looks objectively at who can beat Biden, it's going to be DeSantis. We already had a match with Biden and Trump. Trump turns out Democrats better than anybody. DeSantis will be able to articulate more clearly what Republicans stand for, and he's not going to be bogged down in other stuff that Trump brings to the election. I don't think that was an illogical thing to think a year ago, right? Uh, because it is true that Trump turns out the dims. Um, the idea that like DeSantis isn't going to get bogged down in shit has become kind of fundamentally silly. Like... He's gotten bogged down in the fact that a lot of his, you know, backers are invested in culture war shit that does not sell well on a national level. This whole like anti-trans crusade he's on, the anti-woke shit, is not a big vote getter. It just gets the base behind you. And like you're never gonna beat Trump in a race to the base, you know? Trump has the core of the hard right Republican Party in his pocket, and they're not gonna like move on from anybody. DeSantis's hope should have been like going after independents, people on the edge, people who are like unhappy with Biden. And I think when you pick this sort of like hate crusade, it hasn't worked well. But Huffines decided that like, yeah, this guy, this is the dude who has a shot. Uh, I think he can actually like pull it out from from Trump. I think he's got the ability to like get a lot of people in the middle or close to the middle. Um this has been proven kind of uh, absurd over the last couple of months of stagnating poll numbers. Huffine says that the governor recently held a meeting with about 150 Texas Republicans in Dallas, where he, quote, impressed them with his stamina, youth, and performance uh, in recent Florida state elections. And there's a number of reasons to think that this is a bad strategy, that like really laying on his performance in the last Florida election is like a good way for him to win support. One of these has to do with the fact that like Florida is the natch the national watchword for crazy, right? Like like the rest Florida of the country. Man. E yeah, even yeah. a lot of conservatives when they're talking about like madness in America, they talk about Florida. Like Florida man is an archetype. Um and like yeah, there's a lot of right-wing culture warriors who like Ron's anti-immigrant and anti-LGBT policies, but moderates and swing voters, the people he has a chance of pulling away from Trump, like if you tell them I want to make New Hampshire more like Florida, most swing voters are going to be like, that sounds like hell. <laughs> like, I don't want to be anything like that place. Like, what a horrible, what a horrible idea. Um, this is a sentiment that you will find among Republican thought leaders. Quote, one Republican consultant who has worked on presidential campaigns said DeSantis was t making a classic governor's mistake by talking extensively about his past accomplishments. Yeah. Put bluntly, people in Ohio or Iowa do not want to be Florida. They don't care about Florida, and they are tired of hearing about Florida. Um yeah, because he's he's so reliant on the types of coverage that have come out uh, during the past two years of legislative stuff he's done in Florida, and he's I guess forgetting the overall uh, view of that people have of Florida, divorced from his own administrative uh, changes. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not like people are moving in droves to Florida because he's defeated the woke menace and he's created a paradise. Like, yeah, it, 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 he's getting high on his own supply a little bit. He's getting high on his own supply. It's one thing. There's a degree of his campaign that's focused on like the, what he calls like the Florida miracle, the fact that Florida economically <laughs> weathered COVID pretty well. And again, this would be a stronger point if like Florida's economy was booming and everywhere else was bad. But the U.S. economy 
overall, in terms of like the numbers that, you know, economists care about, at least, is like doing reasonably well. And like of the shit that is bad in the US economy, it's not any better. Like inflation is not better, markedly better in Florida than it is in Iowa, right? There's just not a good case to be made. Cause like when you're not, when you can't really drive the economic point home, when you can't be like, look at how much better Florida is doing than your home. You know, it's a it's a fucking paradise compared to the you know shitty economy in Ohio. That's an argument you can make if there's any evidence for it. But when you're like, you can't really make the economic argument. It all comes down to culture war stuff, and most Americans don't want this culture war shit going on in their backyard because it's like a gross, weird pain in the ass. So right now, the bulk of DeSantis' support comes from higher income old guard Republicans, the kind who were lukewarm for Trump from the beginning. Um, and the kind who point out rightfully that he didn't win against Biden and it's time for new blood. This is true, but current polling indicates it's not what most GOP voters want, which is kind of the big problem the Republicans have is that, and this is why Trump's definitely going to win, you know, as the the primary campaign, is that like the hardcore of the GOP cannot be overcome by the moderates because the 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 hardcore is so in lockstep about what they want and what they want is Trump. Um, the moderates don't have control of the party, um, but the moderates are the ones who can like actually win a general election. So yeah, it's it's a tough situation for them to be in. Um, and one of the things that kind of shows how fucked Ron is is that like Ron won re-election in Florida in his last gubernatorial campaign by about twenty points uh, a year or so ago. In Florida, Trump currently has a twenty point lead on him. Not great. Not great. No, that's a disaster. Like, because again, not only like, should you be able to bring in your home state as a sitting governor, but like, it shows that Ron is not popular because of his legislative achievements. He's popular because Florida is just that right wing, right? Like, that's like, currently, uh, like the electoral state uh, or status of Florida is very conservative. And so Ron won by an overwhelming margin. But that doesn't mean people love him. They definitely like Trump more than they like him. Um, bad situation to be in. And a number of early backers in DeSantis's orbit have begun to acknowledge this reality. I'm going to quote from NBC News here. Yeah, there are a number of people grumbling about it, no doubt, a DeSantis donor said. There is an overall sense, including with me, that he just has not ignited the way we thought he would. Um, and I find that really interesting because you get versions of that a lot that like we were expecting him to really take off as soon as he started campaigning and he hasn't. And that was our only strategy. You get this and like if you read interviews with like folks who were in the DeSantis orbit and people because a number of his early backers have like peeled away and rescinded their their endorsements and given them to Trump. It was this this hope they had that like. Once, as soon as he's out in front of America, Americans are going to love this guy because he's all the good stuff about Trump with none of the baggage. And that was just fundamentally disastrously wrong. And I think one of the things we're starting to see is that the DeSantis people didn't have another plan for how to get this guy elected. Like their plan was that we think that Trump's policies are popular, but everyone doesn't like Trump. And no, that's actually not (laughs) accurate. The opposite of true almost like some of them just like Trump as a as a person. Yeah, a lot of them don't care about what he's done. They like the fact that he owns the libs, right? They're not he's thinking a about it. He's he's a compelling character. Yeah. And DeSantis yeah. is a void of charisma. He yeah. he is he is not a compelling character. He's actually like 
he's good at being like an administrator in like like yeah. he's like he, he's very successful in doing bad things. Right? He's a guy you oh, make okay. your chief of staff if you're exactly. the president or something. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. yeah he's not like true. a he's he's not a compelling character like the way Trump is. No, and it's it's again it's so fascinating to me. It says a lot about like the degree of bubble that all of the political class are in. And when I say the political class, I mean the people, the fairly small number of people in the left and the right, liberals and conservatives, who work on political campaigns, right? Because it's actually a pretty small community of people, of the folks who do the different jobs that are running political campaigns and that are like working as the age and legislative assistants and all that stuff for for elected leaders. And and because to me, to just a guy sitting out there, like I'm worried about Ron because what he's doing in Florida. But from the moment I saw the guy speak, I was like, well, this man has no charisma whatsoever. And if you can't think about like how a guy could attract voters, if there's nothing that seems appealing about a candidate to you, if you can't understand their charisma, that's probably a good sign that they can't get elected. I am not mystified by why any president who has won in my lifetime won. Right. George W. I've been in a room with George W. Bush and watched him spoke to me and it immediately made sense why people fucking love George W. Bush. He has an he had an attitude. He had an air that put people at ease. He was good at putting on a character that people found appealing in that time and place. There's a reason why so many voters who loved him, you know, especially after the first campaign where it was kind of a <laughs> uh, but like there's a reason why he got reelected. Like there's and it's the same thing with like. Uh, Bill Clinton, right? You watch uh, old videos of Bill Clinton on the campaign trail before he was president. He, you can see the charisma. You can see the way he connects to audiences. You can see the things about him that people find appealing. There's not a mystery. It's not mysterious why Obama got elected. He's a deeply charismatic man. And, uh, you know, Joe needed a little bit of help. Uh, that's why he lost so many presidential campaigns beforehand. But next to Donald Trump, he seems like a a a a, a much more appealing person. Like, I'm not mystified. And I'm not mystified by why Trump got elected. Next to Hillary Clinton, Trump felt... Not like a politician, not like the same people who would let us down. There was this this degree to which, like, uh, you should never be. You should, if you're looking at like whether or not someone can win an election, you should never be like, well, I don't get it, but I guess maybe they have. They, they must have some sort of charisma because everybody's talking about them as a serious candidate. No, I, honestly, if you can't see anything about a, appealing about a candidate, then that might be a good sign that they're they're doomed. And I think DeSantis is fucking doomed. And this is kind of a thing that a lot of his uh, his early backups have started to realize. One DeSantis-aligned operative told NBC, from my understanding, if we don't see a bump in the polls, we're basically going to shut down the idea of a national operation. This is really something that like, we're probably going to see. I wouldn't be surprised if he kind of has a blowout politically pretty early in the um, the primary season next year. Because he raised a lot of money earlier in his campaign. He raised about $20 million or so between mid-May and the end of June of this year, which actually put him ahead, fundraising-wise, of Trump by about $2 million or so. But the Trump campaign ended last quarter with twice as much cash on hand as Ron, alongside a still-dominating lead in the poll. So Ron has raised a lot of money, which kind of speaks to the number of sort of like Republican, you know, institutional backers who hoped that he could win where Trump had failed, but he blew all that shit and it didn't get him anything, right? Like he didn't raise a, like he, 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 he crept up a teeny amount in the polls, but he's still like tied for second with Donald Trump, um, despite blowing all of that money. And I think we're going to reach a point pretty quickly where 
if he doesn't immediately take, you know, a state or two or three from Trump in the early primaries, any kind of hope he has for further donations is going to dry up because like, why would you keep wasting that money? We all saw how much money got wasted trying to take Trump out of the primaries in 2016. I do think people are going to be a little more gun shy this time. Um, There have already been a number of recent layoffs of major staffers by DeSantis. He's kind of purged a big chunk of the people who started his campaign. One of the things that's a little interesting about him and his political career is that as a politician, he has always been kind of noted as kind of weird within Florida politics because every election he's had, he's had an entirely new team of people. He does not work with the same people twice. He does not have, like, bring people back for his campaigns, which is really unusual in U.S. politics yeah. for a successful politician. When you win, you tend to bring him back a lot of the same people who helped you win the last time. And so the fact that Ron doesn't do that, that he's like got such basically 100% churn in his teams suggests a couple of things. One, he's not great to work with. And two, the people who work with him and have been successful and are good don't see him as someone with national potential, right? They don't want to keep working with him because then they get kind of trapped in the loop of being a DeSantis guy. They want to move on somewhere else because they think governor is as high as this guy can go. You know, like that is kind of yeah. one of the things that you see when you note this dude has such total turnover in his fucking teams. Now, again, for all of the money that he spent, Ron's polling numbers have changed basically nil from when he announced his candidacy. Uh, according to New York Magazine, kind of collated a bunch of this together. In the re- real clear politics average of polls starting July 1st, 2022, Trump had a 34-point lead over Ron DeSantis and 52.8% of the vote in national surveys, with DeSantis at 18.5. Um, at present, uh, he's got uh, Trump's lead over DeSantis. So a year ago, Trump had a 34-point lead over DeSantis. Now he's at 32, which is not the speed of movement that you want to see after a year of of effectively campaigning. Um On the national surveys, DeSantis has gone from 18.5% to about 21%, which again is just kind of like a disastrous uh, rate of change. Um, Now, this is just one poll. There's potentially outliers here. I've seen other polls that show DeSantis at more like 12% and tied with Vivek Ramaswamy, um, who is another uh, GOP candidate. Like the fact that Vivek who is not nearly the kind of national name that DeSantis is, is tied with him in some polls now, is fucking disastrous. He and Trump are pretty close in terms of funding. Vivek has has raised only a fraction of what what DeSantis has raised. So that's a pretty bad sign. Kind of a fucking disaster. One major area in which Ron lags behind Trump is his ability to draw interest and what amounts to free advertising from the media. Um, Trump famously got about a billion dollars in free publicity in 2016, thanks to relentless media coverage of his every move, gaffe, and speech. He understood it didn't matter if it was negative. It didn't matter that they were shit-talking me. What matters is that they're keeping my face out front, right? This is a thing that will bring me support. It will bring me donors. It will make my supporters see me as like this kind of gladiator fighting for them. He leaned into this shit. On the surface, Ron and Trump are kind of the same in their approach to the media and that if you go to a DeSantis speech, you go to a Trump speech, they're going to call the media the enemy of the people or some variant thereof. They're going to talk about the need to control the press. They're going to like support authoritarian measures against like free, you know, 
uh, the the free press. Like like again, if you're kind of just looking on the surface, it seems like they have the same attitude towards the media, but the way they treat journalists is completely different. In that, DeSantis has no strategy with the media. He just attacks them. If you're if you're right wing media, if you're some podcaster he likes, he'll go on your show. He'll talk to you, but he ignores the liberal media. He ignores the mainstream media. But that's that's different from having a tactic for dealing with them. Trump has a strategy with the media. He will howl that they're the enemy of the people in front of crowds. He'll talk about locking up journalists. But if you like read articles about him after a speech or whatever, he always gives the press their time. He knows a lot of these guys by name. He has relationships with reporters. He's had relationships with like Maggie Haberman of the Times. Um, he's he's able to be like friendly with these people and social with them, which isn't like doesn't make it's not doing that to be a good person. He's doing it because like. He wants them to feel comfortable around him and cover him. Oh, and yeah, like, and this is this is the thing that he's been doing longer than he's been a politician. Like, Trump is primarily like a media guy. Like, he is he is someone yeah. who's been able to very successfully manipulate public image and manipulate media in his favor for years. Especially as like he's not like a good businessman. He's like no, he's like a con man who's like really good. He's with a media. good promoter. So like yeah. he knows how to do this. DeSantis has none of this background so he's just trying to copy like the the hostile vibe of trump without understanding the actual like media backing that trump puts into his uh into his like relationship with uh with like with like advertising and with having you know any any amount of coverage that will get republicans be like oh this is a guy that's worth voting for yeah and we'll also that will the kind of coverage that will make independents pay attention to him, right? Yeah. A big thing, part of how a lot of negative media coverage worked for Trump is that people would just see his name in the fucking news. And, you know, so they would wind up reading and listening to a lot of what he had to say. And because, like, you know, he's getting so much coverage and because all of these media outlets have want to f- present the image of being unfair and unbiased – like when Trump would go out and sit down with the New York Times, sit down with the Post, sit down, with, he would often get coverage that like let him say his piece, let him make his case. Like they would because they didn't want to feel like they were being biased and he was giving them some of his time. But when you just cut the media off like DeSantis has done, you don't get that from them. You don't get any of like the benefit of this sort of like idea of impartiality, which cuts down on your ability to actually like reach people who might be converted to vote for you. This is highlighted particularly well in a segment from a recent New York Times article on DeSantis's difficulty getting press coverage. Quote, Assigned to cover the re-election campaign of Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, Miles Cohen, a young ABC News reporter, found himself stymied. The governor would not grant him an interview. Aides barred him from some campaign events and interrupted his conversations with supporters. When Mr. Cohen was finally able to ask a question about the governor's handling of Hurricane Ian, Mr. DeSantis shouted him down, Stop! 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 and scolded the media for trying to cast aspersions. The DeSantis campaign then taunted Mr. Cohen on Twitter prompting a torrent of online vitriol. So on election night, Mr. Cohen decamped to a friendlier environment for the news media, Mar-a-Lago, where former President Donald J. Trump greeted reporters by name. He came up to us, asked how the sandwiches were, and took 20 questions, Mr. Cohen recalled. Mr. Trump, who heckled the fake news in his speech that evening, elevated media bashing into a high art for Republicans. But ahead of the next presidential race, potential candidates like Mr. DeSantis are taking a more radical approach, not just attacking nonpartisan news sources, but out ignoring them altogether. And um, yeah, I think that kind of like gets at the core of of what a bad strategy this is. And it shows all of the Republicans right now because of Trump's success in 2016, which we do have to remember was not based on 
converting a majority of Americans. It was based in part on like the electoral system and and just raw luck that shit broke the way it did. But they are looking at like his success in 2016 and trying to copy that. But it's like a cargo cult thing, right? They don't actually understand what he did that worked. They see him bashing the media in his speeches. So they're like, well, I'm going to be even harder. I'm not going to talk to the media at all. And it's like, well, you have eliminated for yourself the primary benefit that Trump drew out from this. Um, yeah, I think the cargo cult description is great. They're like they're trying to to have the appearance of doing the Trump thing without understanding why yeah. the thing worked. And like also yeah. importantly, it's not like 2016 anymore. As much as it feels like 2016 was no. the year that never ended, actually a lot has changed, and also a lot of media has gotten a bit wise to the tactics that that Trump did. Like yeah. they're no longer yeah. going to be blasting all of his speeches every time he says something outrageous because yeah. they know that's part of his strategy. So like yeah. the same tactics, yeah. if if DeSantis thinks he's going to get publicity for saying some horrible thing in his speech, the, the media knows what's up now. Like they, they've, they've already seen this like playbook get played. So it's not like it's, you can't treat it like it's eight years ago. Yeah, I think a, a good example of this is in 2016, if it had come out, if Joe Biden had been the front writer, say he beats, you know, Hillary Clinton, but everything else is the same. So he's the he's the Democratic primary guy. Say it comes out that his son has been smoking crack with prostitutes and like <laughs> there's pictures of his hog everywhere and he was involved in so he gets charges against him for committing a couple of crimes. That might sink a presidential campaign in 2016. Nobody gives a shit about Hunter Biden, like zero moderates. Not a single vote is being changed as a result of the Hunter Biden situation in 2024. It's a different landscape. And these people haven't, uh, this is a a good thing. I am frightened for when a new, you know, there's another coup in conservative politics and somebody understands that it's a different year. Um, Yeah, yeah. But but we are are fortunate at this moment. And you know who else is fortunate? Who's that, Robert? The sponsors of this podcast, they're fortunate to have great pitchmen like James Stout. James, why don't you tell the people which meal box subscription will finally cure the gnawing pit of anxiety at the center of their life uh, and and bring them both both peace and the love of Jesus Christ? Yeah, absolutely. We're probably going to have to uh, we're going to have to bleat some shit out here, but uh, absolutely. When the uh, no, I personally love uh, been a big chicken wing fan my whole life until the mm-hmm. baby's arms from oh, the yeah. apron arrived. Yeah. They are delicious little little fatty arms from freshly mm-hmm. harvested babies. And I've felt better inside and out since mm-hmm. uh, I started eating children. Yeah, just remember our, our motto. Uh, nothing's wafficking like human trafficking shit. <laughs> go to go to HelloFresh.com, use promo code CHILDRENARMS for a mm-hmm. 10% discount on blue, your first blue, box. Blue Apron. Yeah, Actually, yeah. cut HelloFresh there. <laughs> <laughs> They're giving us a lot of money. It's Blue Apron we shit on. Ah, we're back, and we're thinking about how there's one food box company who's been accused of a lot of malfeasance, and another food box company who are, I think it's safe to say, Christ-like, you know, uh, honestly. and uh, Jesus-inspired, yeah. Jesus to at, yeah. at, mm-hmm. at the very least. Yeah, well, the absolutely. reason Jesus uh, actually uh, rose from the dead was to consume a breakfast uh, That's made right. by Blue Apron. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jesus, big, big omelet guy. Huge omelet guy. 
Anyway, I don't know. That's, That's not really saying. a joke. Um, so Ron DeSantis has long ignored any media not guaranteed to be fawningly indulgent of him for political reasons. This worked well in Florida. He's been able to get by by attacking centrist and liberal media and embracing a constellation of far-right podcasters and Fox News. But Florida is not the United States, and a governor's race is not a federal election. He simply can't succeed against Trump with the same tactics that worked in Florida's uh, or against Florida's anemic state Democratic Party. When he's tried to rebuke the naysayers who see his cause as largely doomed, DeSantis has tried to publicly downplay the significance of national polls. This is one of my favorite things. Whenever people point out, like, your polls have not moved in a year and you've spent millions and millions of dollars, he'll be like, I don't trust those polls. Those polls don't really matter. You can't trust the poll. Look at how wrong the polls were in 2016. Um, yeah, he's called I've, articles. I've, I've yeah. seen him use that line a lot. Look, yeah. l- look how wrong the polls were in 2016. <laughs> okay, Ron. Yeah, I uh, I don't think they were not off by thirty four points. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you can see clearly how he's making his case currently to donors in private because a memo that he sent out to a bunch of his high dollar donors leaked recently. There's been a number of websites that have written about it, but we have like this memo which is fascinating. Um, it was sent out to a bunch of big dollar donors to a super PAC. So these are the people who are not limited by like ca- campaign contributions because it's to a super okay. PAC. Um, so these are like the the thick pockets people. So we get an idea of how he is marketing his campaign right now that it's in a, a crisis. Um, and it starts with a state of the race update with a subtitle, the ballot is very fluid. <laughs> Early state voters are only softly committed to the candidates they select on a ballot question this far out, including many Trump supporters. Our focus group participants in the early states even say they don't plan on making up their mind until they meet the candidates or watch them debate. Well, we know Trump's floor is 25%. That leaves three quarters of the electorate willing to consider other viable options. What has not changed are the candidates who are realistically being courted by the electorate. As it has been for the last year, Trump and DeSantis remain the only viable options for two thirds of the likely Republican primary electorate. While Tim Scott has earned a serious look at this stage, his bio is lacking the fight that our electorate is looking for in the next president. We expect Tim Scott to receive appropriate scrutiny in the weeks ahead. We found low to no interest in Vivek, Burgum, and Nikki, while too many voters will not consider Pence or Christie for them to be remotely viable. Now, I agree about Pence and Christie. Neither of those people is going to be the the primary candidate. But again, Vivek in some polls is right up there with uh, Ron DeSantis. So... Yeah. Note that neither of them's going to win. Great, great sign. Yeah. yeah. The memo goes on to note uh, and to sort of admit that their efforts in other primary states have have hit a wall. And they're basically like, we're giving up in Iowa and, and Ohio, kind of. We're not going to be putting new resources into them. We're just going to throw everything we've got into New Hampshire. Um, there's a couple of reasons for this, but I think it's largely that they don't think they can win in those other early states, and they know they desperately need an early win to have any hope of building up yeah. momentum. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, language like this from the memo has to have experienced Republican politicos nervous. While Super Tuesday is critically important, we will not dedicate resources to Super Tuesday that st- slow our momentum in New Hampshire. We expect <laughs> to revisit this investment in the fall. <laughs> I, I'm sure you will. Not a great sign, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the I'm memo sure wall. Yeah, I'm sure. You'll, I'm sure you'll be re- re- revisiting a lot of things in the fall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The memo also mind. claims Governor DeSantis and his message are thriving in town hall engagements. So basically, when Ron gets in front of people, they see his magnetic charisma. They really like him once he gets a chance to shine in front of them. <laughs> now, there's been no evidence in polling 
Uh, he's been in front of people quite a bit, and he's not very impressive. Most of the social media response to his public appearances have been people making fun of the way he eats in public. Like, <laughs> there's like six or seven different videos out that are him trying to eat something and looking like a goober and people making fun of him. Whereas, like, again, Trump has, because he's actually charismatic, Trump can, like, sit in a truck and look like a doofus playing truck driver and everybody's like look at that guy even people who hate him are like well that's kind of endearing look at him he's honking the horn he's pretended to be a big truck driver um you know meatball ron i mean we call him meatball ron because of a food related gaffe uh putting ron too putting ron too he's just a disaster in public There are some useful bits in this leaked document. This is the part of the document where the DeSantis campaign is like trying to lay out what they see as his assets as a candidate. And again, the goal of this is to get big dollar donors to give him more money. So this is them making the case as to why Ron is worth further further investment. We found that when voters hear about the governor's bio, principally as a dad and as a veteran, they like him and are open to hearing more about him. This is to say nothing of his successes on parental rights, his leadership bringing Florida's economy back during and after COVID, fighting illegal immigration and and ensuring border uh, security, that he's not just a fighter, but most importantly, a winner. A major paid media effort featuring the governor's bio will help us to convert. Three big issues that, and you know, that's again. So the three big issues he's he's highlighting that he says like these are the things that are going to get voters onto us. Enough of them that we can overcome Trump's twenty five percent floor are anti immigration stuff. Well, I'm sorry, man. Trump's got you beat there. The wall is his, right? Uh, DeSantis the, has tried to go one step further. I don't know if you saw his press conference in Texas where he advocated uh, the birthright citizenship thing. Yeah, no, just shooting people. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think he said, "quote drop a few of them." Yeah, um, we, I, he's trying to, but again, he's he, he just talked about what's interesting to me. He opens this memo by starting like, "Look, Trump's got a twenty five percent floor of support, but you know, there's that other three quarters of people we can get." And yet, when you are talking about gunning people down at the border, you're just trying to take that twenty five percent from Trump. You are not reaching yeah. out to like the people who are less maniac, right? He's he's trying like. Again, it's just bad strategy. It's a bad strategy within the context of what his people have laid out as a strategy, right? Like if the yeah. good strategy is go for the other 75% of the voters, well, you probably don't do that by promising to be even harder on the border. Yeah, it, anyway. it, and he doesn't really even have like, to, to obviously Trump didn't have a coherent border policy either. Yeah. Uh, but he had a thing, right? Like he had a sort of shiny thing. That he he had three about. words that were very powerful. Build the wall. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, that, if DeSantis thinks Americans are ready for shoot them all, right? You can which, try that. But yeah. he's not. He's like trying to do this weasel. Thing. Anyway, it's just not, it, there's just not any evidence of an actual tactic there, of an understanding yeah. of like what people find appealing and how to highlight it. He's not doing it yet. He's not, dis, he's not, if you're a donor, he's not, uh, exhibiting the idea that he knows how to copy what Trump did and do it one better. Like your goal here, at, if you're running against Trump, based on kind of what they lay out is what their strategy needs to be, which is get the other 75% of people to back us instead of Trump. You need to be, you you, you don't need to be yes anding. You, you are acknowledging by laying that out as the strategy that Trump uh, his appeal is there's a, he's got a dedicated base of appeal, but it's limited. And so if you are trying to make the case that you're more electable than him, you need to show how you have a wider 
base of uh, like a wider appeal than he does. And you don't do that by being like, I'm even shittier on the border. Like, anyway, just a bad yeah. strategy. Um, since he doesn't have a strong case to make in absolute numbers, Ron's campaign has made the call to push heavily on the forgotten man narrative, arguing a soft conspiratorial view that a cabal of shady elites is colluding to ruin American greatness. Uh, here's another quote from that memo. Equally important, we will offer an economic message to disrupt and win economy voters. American decline was not an accident. It was a choice. Our elites do not consider themselves Americans so much as they think of themselves as citizens of the world. Their loyalty is not to a discrete nation, but to the bottom line on a balance sheet. And the decisions they made in leading this country over the past few decades has reflected that worldview. They have governed in their interests rather than ours. And I do think there's a germ of something interesting there. There's a, there's this idea of like economic populism which was a a factor in Trump's campaign. It's interesting to me how close Ron's idea is to like outright anti-Semitic conspiracy theory language. Like, yeah, they don't recognize borders. Uh, they're citizens of the world, which is a you know very similar to a lot of the arguments that like the Nazis would make about the Jews. Is that like they're a borderless people who exist within this like financial system. Um, rather than like our national like co-citizens, right? Um, it's interesting to me that he's got that this in that memo. Um, again, I don't think it's a good strategy. I think the way Trump Trump's just better at doing this, right? At like he's made himself like there's a lot of people who consider Trump like their kind of guy, like a working class dude, even though he's a billionaire <laughs> with a gold toilet. Um, I don't see that DeSantis has the ability to like win that kind of support from working people no um, he he tried really hard to go to push his like his military record as part of a like yeah sort of i'm a normal dude kind of thing but it doesn't seem to have stuck the landing at all like again he just yeah i just did it in a clumsy and an awkward way yeah i mean in part because like the thing he's got to hang on like that he was this fucking dude doing sketchy shit at guantanamo isn't like even conservatives don't feel great about that right yeah he like, tried earlier to push like he was a legal he was a jag officer like yeah. attached to a seal team but yeah he tried to call himself a seal yeah i think he like i i think he flew a little bit too close to the sun on that one <laughs> and again like yeah he fucked up and alienated the people he was trying to appeal to and i also i do kind of wonder it, it was like sort of taken as read for some time that having military experience was like a positive aspect in a in a campaign that it would like win you a lot of conservative voters yeah. and whatnot. I don't know that that's really the case. Yeah, anymore. the uh, like, certainly I don't see the, a lot of evidence for it. Like people certainly hug. like shout it when they serve, but I don't know that it really works for them. Yeah, I think that's more of a tr like a I, I don't know if I'm using the right phrasing here, like a traditional Republican value, yeah. not like a post-Trump Republican value. Because Trump is like on record as being like, no, only idiots serve in the military. I'm a smart <laughs> yeah. man. And like yeah. that didn't seem to hurt him at all. Um, <laughs> but you know who else hates veterans? Oh, yeah. Several of the uh, the food box delivery companies. That's they right. actually they just won't just mm -hmm. give them food. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They are nope. they are actively every one of our supporters is wiping their ass with uh, whatever flag the Navy uses. I assume they have a flag, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Special Navy flag. It yeah. works underwater too. Very special oh, flag. That's good. That's good. An underwater flag. That's what we need to bring mm -hmm. nationalism to the fish. We're back. 
So I wanted to close out by kind of looking at a segment of DeSantis supporters, uh, the find people behind my favorite reliable media institution, LegalInsurrection.com. Oh, good. Um, Now, this is a kind of libertarian right themed news website. They're like, boy, I I do want you to look up LegalInsurrection.com because their website's (laughs) very interesting. It like starts with this like phonetic breakdown of the phrase legal insurrection. Like that's their logo. That includes yeah. like a definition arising up against established authority, rebellion, revolt, in conformity with or permitted by law. That's a nonsense phrase because there's no such thing as a permitted legal insurrection. We had this argument actually, like back in around 1860, and uh, guess where it ended? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm not saying it's bad to have an insurrection. I think some insurrections are potentially really good, but they're never legal. Otherwise, they're not yeah. an insurrection. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. Like, the sine that, that's qua a silly non idea. insurrection is illegality. Yeah, like one way or the other. I think it's this idea, these people who like pretend to be libertarians, they still have this like sacred sort of reverence for the law. They can't just say like, yeah, I believe in overthrowing the government. No, no, no. What I'm doing is actually obeying the real law. The people in charge are obeying laws that are illegal and fake. But like, I know the real law. So what I'm not, I'm not a criminal. Like, no, nah, man, just be like, yeah, man, I'm a criminal. I want to, I want to overthrow you the government. Crimes. You know what's yeah. cool is being a criminal who wants to overthrow the government. We all love criminals. This is why Star Wars is the biggest movie series. We love criminals who want to overthrow <laughs> yeah. the government. That's who the founding fathers of this country yes, were. It, it is a very like, American thing to love. <laughs> you, you shouldn't have to be like, no, but ours is illegal. And so, no, fuck it. You're a criminal. You're cool. You're fucking Al Capone. <laughs> like, yeah, it's very, very cucked to have a legal yeah, insurrection. It is very cucked. Anyway, here's an article from legalinsurrection.com who it bafflingly backs Ron DeSantis. Florida government Ron DeSantis is serious about restoring executive branch agencies and rebuilding trust with the American people who've been shocked and appalled at the weaponization of government by the Biden administration. And before that, the Obama administration, the federal government, specifically the executive branch alphabet agencies, has been completely corrupted by the Obama Biden and now the Biden Harris administrations. We all know it. And we're all disgusted and disheartened by the myriad ways the Obama administration targeted political opponents. That's why Trump's 2016 campaign to drain the swamp was so potent. We knew the depth and breadth of the corruption, the partisan banana republic-style attacks on political opponents, and we wanted it stopped. Unfortunately, Trump was not able to drain the swamp at all, not even a little bit. So when Biden took office in 2021, he just got to work picking up Obama's attacks on dissent with the deep state still fully embedded through the executive branch. Having spent the intervening years openly working as the resistance to Trump's the duly elected president's agenda. God, it's such... First off, it's very funny that they're trying to like make the resistance to be anything but like Twitter libs. Uh, yes. yeah. Like, I do find it funny that they're like <laughs> fucking trying to treat this like a boogeyman. I'm just yeah, like leading the maquis through the through the I don't know forest <laughs> of Georgia and blowing up fucking train tracks is extremely amusing to me. It's just sad, but it does get at something, right? This attitude among a lot of Republicans, particularly the guys who really like DeSantis, that the deep state is really powerful. These um, federal law enforcement agencies are fundamentally like fighting against us, and we have to build an ability to compete with them. And this is, I actually think, we've been mostly talking about like the weaknesses and the dumb shit about DeSantis's campaign. <laughs> I think a strength he has not uh, uh, maybe capitalized on enough is this idea, because this is something Trump proved he was unable to do 
Like he 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 didn't go in there and unseat the deep state. And DeSantis has actually been kind of effective at resisting the federal government um, and even sidelining some federal agencies within Florida. Um, and there's some actual like potential for strength here with Trump's base. I don't know that this gets you moderates, but like it's weird to me that he hasn't pushed this harder. Part of that may be the fact that he's like everything else, really bad at it. Kind of his his strongest attempt to provide sort of a countervailing force to federal law enforcement um, was his activation of the Florida uh, State Guard, which uh, 17 or so states have state guards. It's just kind of like a state version of a National Guard, potentially. Um, Florida's had not been active in a while, and he reactivated them, claiming that it was going to be a force of volunteers who could respond to hurricanes and other public emergencies. But what he was actually doing was trying to create a paramilitary organization. He is in the process of attempting to do this now. Um, these people are undergoing like military training and whatnot. Um, he's trying to get them access to like weaponry. Like this is potentially kind of concerning, but he's really fucking bad at it. There was a really interesting New York Times article recently that kind of goes into the uh, the problems the Florida State Guard have had sort of spinning up. Um, and it's a very funny read because it's like it's like a little kid's idea about how you would build a paramilitary organization. Um, so on paper, the governor's office has said that one of the guard's missions would be, quote, to ensure Florida remains fully fortified to respond not only to natural disasters, but also to protect its people and borders from illegal aliens and civil unrest. And then the New York Times article continues, the deployment this spring has been mired in internal turmoil, with some recruits complaining that what was supposed to be a civilian disaster response organization had become heavily militarized, requiring volunteers to participate in marching drills and military-style training sessions on weapons and hand-to-hand combat. At least 20% of the 150 people initially accepted into the program dropped out or were dismissed. And if you get into this, the people dropping out are like the veterans. They're like military officers and stuff who got into this thing and then are like, I was in the military for 20 years. You know, I did a deploy deployments here and here. And I came into this thing and it's a bunch of civilians dressed as soldiers yelling at me to do pushups and march in a field. And like trying to be an asshole to me because they're angry that like I have military experience and they think they know better. Um, <laughs> Like it is like the the volunteers said the training seemed poorly structured with an inordinate amount of time spent, as one of them described it, marching in fields. Some of the men said that as veterans with years of experience in the military, they were offended when they were yelled at by junior instructors acting like drill sergeants who disregarded their previous ranks. I find this really (laughs) fucking funny. Have you guys seen those videos coming out about like there are these classes where if you're like a rich or you know upper middle class dude you can pay like 10 grand to spend 5 days doing a fake version of the yes. Navy Seals Hell Week like you roll you're you're like yeah, grinding incredible like, like yeah you're like carry, like hitting stuff with big hammers uh you're like crawling on your back through rocks you're doing all these like shitty painful yeah. exercises <laughs> while like some dude who probably fucking got an other than honorable separation from the Marine Corps as a p- private second class, <laughs> like screams at you a lot. And it's, you know, it, that's what you feel. Yeah, while you need riding in your a life. one wheel. Have you seen yeah, that one? Yeah. Rolling around on a one wheel yelling at you that you're, <laughs> yes. you know, just like it's, making up bullshit reasons to be angry at you because uh, idiots uh, honestly have it like, yeah, <laughs> it sounds like a weird mix of like expensive LARPing and like 
a and like a repressed kink thing for for these guys. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah that's it's a what's repressed happening. kink. Yeah, it's yeah. yeah. As a, a as lot a of guys British who person, watched the, I've seen this the movie Full Metal Jacket, and a, number one didn't watch all of it because like R. Lee Ermy or whatever his name was character there, like the really mean drill sergeant gets murdered after like emotionally abusing one of his recruits, like kind of a big part of the movie. Um, But just saw him like making fun, like yelling at people and making up fun insults. And we're like, well, that's got to be key to teaching people how to fight. Garrison, have you seen full metal jacket? I have not seen full metal jacket. You'd actually probably like it. It's good. There's there's some interesting parts of that movie. Well well shot, but yeah, I I do think it's really funny. Like there's potentially this is one of those things, potentially very scary to have a far right elected leader building his own paramilitary force that is answerable only to him. Right? Yeah, that is a frightening thing. Yeah, I'm that's not like- saying. That's we like, shouldn't be concerned about him trying this, but he's so shitty at it. That's like Dictator 101. Yeah. Yeah, like, it, it makes sense that he would try it. I mean, like, yeah. I, I would never want to be a governor because I think that's an immoral thing to do. But if I if I was to be yeah, an authoritarian I'm, I'm, governor, I would want one. my own hit squad. Step one, make your own army. And it, it says a lot about Ron, number one, that of all of the different things he's tried to do, this is the only one that seems like, oh, you might actually be able to get a lot of Trump voters to switch over to you if you promise them, I'm going to do this nationwide. And you, as a guy who didn't join the army but is pretty sure he would have been good at it, can like become a militant commander in your like state guard thing that I'm going to establish. <sighs> you might get some votes. I don't think you'd win a lot of moderates, but you might get the base away from Trump, right? It's- it's just so clearly a brown shirts ripoff. Yeah. Like it's just like it's so blatant that it's like it's it's like it's like it's like he's like poorly copying someone else's homework. Yeah. I mean, like like a, I don't a lot of his campaign has that vibe that he's like yeah. just poorly copying someone else's homework. Like I don't know that this would work and I still <laughs> think he would have it would be a long shot that he would have any chance of beating Trump. But if he were to be like I'm going to establish a state guard where conservatives can get access to military-grade weaponry and the right to carry their handguns everywhere. Yeah. Uh, you might get, I don't. again, I don't think you win a general that way, but you might get the base away from Trump with that. It's, it's at least more creative than anything else he's tried. Anyway, this is all a bad idea. I want to close by reading one last anecdote from that New York Times article on Ron, Meatball Ron's attempt to make an army. A 51-year-old former Marine captain who had retired from the military with a disability and later joined the State Guard also clashed with instructors during initial boot camp last month, raising concerns about the training. In an assault complaint filed with the Clay County Sheriff's Office, the man said he was accused by the State Guard commander of being the leader of the group that had been criticizing the organization and its leadership. He was then forcibly pushed into a van against his objections and driven to the command post, where he was fired and escorted off base. Of the nine original State Guard recruiters and commanders, who spent months recruiting for the organization, fewer than a third remained. The staff director, who had been a proposition of the less militarized version of the group, appointed in January, was removed from his post just two days before the inaugural graduation. The program's personnel director was fired this week. So, good. Sounds like it's going great over there in Florida. <laughs> Sounds like Meatball Ron knows how to make an army. Um, I don't know, folks. That's, uh, that's my episode on... Uh, on the Ron DeSantis campaign, and how he's doing. I hope you all enjoyed this little update. We're done. Cool. Stay tuned for a Vivek Ramaswamy episode.
Yeah, uh, which is just going to be me making fart noises into the microphone. You'll get everything you need on Vivek here. Look, it's going to be Trump. Unless he dies, in which case, yeah. boy, yeah. that could be interesting. I mean, I, I just, like, DeSantis could have waited four years, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and then he could have had the yeah. backing of Trump to help. Yes. Like, he, he, I don't... He's such a he's he's such a weird little like power it's, goblin because like yeah I mean if, if he was still may try to do that Trump has gone back and forth on people in the past but it's such a weird call to like make this doomed play at it to build like this bad like you're gonna piss some people off yeah why yeah anyway I I, I yeah I remember us doing an episode not so long ago about DeSantis and being like well he'll just wait four years until Trump's out the picture but no he fucking defied our expectations by Mm -hmm. torpedoing his own presidential chances yeah and uh that's why I love him Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to fifteen hundred dollars again sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and game sense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Welcome back to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart. And you know, when things fall apart, one of the few things that can keep you on an even keel, you know, keep you feeling like there's something that makes sense in the world, is good TV. You know, I think we can all agree, no job more important than making television, because it's really, for a surprising amount of the population, the only thing keeping them on the ragged edge of sanity. Um... And obviously, if you're at all aware of the news, uh, both the Writers Guild, uh, the WGA, uh, and the Actors Guild, SAG-AFTRA, 
uh, have both separately, uh, although they are now, you know, on strike at the same time, have both kind of independently announced strikes after a breakdown in negotiations with the major studios. Um, and to to talk with me today about what's going on, what's it like being a writer on strike, um, is my friend and uh, one of the people who makes a show that helps keep me on the ragged edge of sanity, Soren Bowie. Soren, how you doing? Woo! <sighs> You're simply the best. Hey, everybody. Hey, you're better than all the rest. Oh, stop it, Tina. Stop it. Mm-hmm. Thank mm-hmm. you. Nice. Very good. Very good. Hi. See, How's it going? Soren, you are my former colleague at uh, cracked.com.net backslash AOL. <laughs> yeah, um, don't send anyone there now. <laughs> yeah. um, and you are also, or at least before the strike hit, uh, where a have been for the last several years a writer on American Dad, uh, one of the the most consistently funny animated shows of like 20 years now, almost it's been oh, on the air. Stop it. Stop. <laughs> oh, thank you, Robert, Tina. You guys are the best. Uh, that's very nice of you. Thank you very much for saying that. It did cost a lot of money to get her in the studio today. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's very kind of you to say. Yeah, I we we try very hard, but it also has it has like a feel at the show of like the warden isn't yeah. watching like we're kind of allowed to do what we want and it's been yeah great you, you love your job uh it's very obvious uh that i think probably everyone there uh loves writing for that show most of the people i know who write for tv have the same attitude of like wow i can't believe i get to do this um but that attitude is great and it makes life livable but what doesn't make life livable and what makes the enjoyment of the job harder is starving to death Uh, which is an increasing reality (laughs) for a lot of writers. Um, Over the last, like, 10 years, um, so a decade ago, about 33% of TV writers got what was paid, like, the minimum rate, which is kind of the minimum rate you get get paid to get staffed on on a a union show. Um, And the WGA says that about half of TV writers are at that point now. Um, writer pay has declined yeah. about 14% over the last five years. And that's with inflation. That's, that's, that's like if you kind of take out inflation, right? Everybody's making a. Yeah, with inflation, yeah. it's like yeah, 23. Yeah, it's about 23% yeah. writer producer pay uh, over the last decade with inflation factored in. So that sucks because people aren't watching 23% <laughs> less TV. In fact, I think we're watching more TV than we ever have before. <laughs> like, um, yeah. So it and I, I like if you listen to the kind of numbers given by streaming platforms about how many people are watching, it sure doesn't seem like TV uh, writers have have been gotten twenty three percent worse at their jobs. Um, so anyway, there was the the WGA went into negotiations earlier this year, and basically to kind of you know shorten it, we're asking for more money, uh, more money in residuals, more money in, in upfront pay, changes to some policies that streamers were using to kind of avoid. There's been sort of this effort by streamers for a while now to kind of kill the concept of a writer's room in a lot of shows, and they have a couple of different sort of fucky ways to do that. I gotta say, Robert, it is a dream to come on your, a podcast with you because you do your fucking homework. <laughs> I usually I'm the one who has to explain all this stuff, but this is great. I'm loving where this is going. Yeah, I, Go I, I on. You're like, absolutely right. Can you walk us through kind of what's been hacked? Cause th- that's a thing that I think is sort of, you miss that on kind of the big level sort of like discussions of this is like what, like what a writer's room is and sort of what streamers have been trying to try to do to change that. Because fundamentally like one thing people who know what they're talking about will point out is that like, 
movies are, you know, not that scripts don't matter, but it's like a director's medium. That's like the big sort of like guiding, you know, uh, through the vision of like what a film is going to be. And TV is a writer driven medium more often. You'll at least hear that a lot. And I kind of want to talk about like what is a writer's room and what has been changing in terms of how studios have been trying to edge that concept out. Great. Great question. So, uh, so writer's room traditionally, like you think back to broadcast television in its heyday, the mm-hmm. way a writer's room worked is you had probably, first of all, you're going to have like 20 to 22 episodes a season. Um, and then within that, you've got a block of anywhere from like 10 to almost sometimes 20 writers. And the reason that you have so many writers on a show like that is because while you're working on it, it's also in production. So as stories are being broken, and that means that there are rooms where people are creating a story together. As that's going on, there's like six other things going on. Like you're going to have they're probably filming during that time. And if that's your particular written by episode, like that's the episode with your name on it, you might be on set for that because you're going to be having to make changes on the fly while that's going on. There's table reads happening. There's joke punch-ups happening. So there's generally a separate room for that. And so you need like a pretty big group of people to just make a show, to just write a show. Um, And that's to let, that's to keep (laughs) the hours within like, to keep them, bearable. I mean, it doesn't even, you, you wouldn't even turn that into a nine to five. Generally, that's still a lot of hours with a lot of people, but at least it's bearable for for everybody. Now streaming has tried to change that because they're tired of hiring so many writers and they're tired of paying writers. And so with streaming, there's different loopholes that they can get into, which is if you start creating a show um, before it's even technically greenlit, you can start having writers write episodes, but because it's not greenlit, you're not beholden to the same rules through the WGA. You can start hiring people at their at, at a minimum, even if they are should be making more than that. And depending on what your position is at in a, as a writer, like you start as a staff writer, then you move up to story editor, then executive story editor, and you move up and up and up from there. Generally, what happens is if you leave a show as a as an executive story editor, you don't then go to another show and drop back down to staff writer. You maintain the position that you have because you've now learned the trade enough that usually you have a skill set that's valuable enough that you should be being paid for being an executive story editor. So what they're doing is they're making sure that people are not being paid for the roles that they generally have because they can do that before a show has been greenlit. And then they will say, we're going to write like, let's just write uh, 12 episodes. And that's a lot. Like that's a whole season of television, but they're doing it before it's greenlit. And then what happens is you will have these writers who are burning the midnight oil, trying to get this thing done and calling in a lot of favors from friends because you have a, such a small group of writers. You have maybe like in a, in a pre-greenlit room, you've got like three or four people trying to write an entire season of a show. Yeah. And as they're writing it, they're like, they're calling in favors from friends to be like, will you come edit this and stuff? Because you don't have enough people for everything. You have to break all these stories simultaneously. You have to know what's going on in each individual room but you don't have enough bandwidth for all of that. So you're calling in favors from other people. Like, do we just come and like, look at this? Will you just mm-hmm. take a look? Like we need like eyes on this. And so you're calling in favors from friends. Students have figured out that they can, they can, yeah. sh- you can ask people to do this. Essentially. It's like, yeah, the it's a economy. natural part of the writing process. Every writer yeah. in every form of writing does a version of this. And they're like, what if we did this to help to make it easier to starve people? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, and then what they would do, there's different tactics beyond that, which is like, once those are at, once those episodes are written, then maybe the studio will, will, uh, they, they can kind of pick and choose when they want to release that. They don't have like a, 
uh, it's not like in broadcast television where everything gets released in the fall. It's just yeah. like you can choose when you want to release it. So maybe you wait a year or whatever. You release it and then you can release it in two seasons. So if you have 12 episodes, you can cut those into two, six, six, six episodes, which I fucking <laughs> hate. I, I, you <laughs> know, this is a little bit of a distraction, but like we miss by the, because we're not doing seasons the way they used to. There's so much good shit we miss. Think like half the best yeah. episodes are Star Trek. We're just like, we have $40 to shoot this episode on. <laughs> like, how, what can we do with like three guys in a room? You know? I know. Like, you yell, you're like, you miss out on those bottle episodes, those like little <laughs> ones where you're just like, or like that, if you think back to Breaking Bad, like there's the fly yeah, episode. Yeah, the fly episode. Yeah. Oh, it's like the best episode of the show because you've got room to stop and breathe and like build yeah. just characters. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, it's like you you lose out on all of that. Then you can also, because you're breaking it up, you don't have to pay people to like advance them to the next yeah. the next season. Gen- and then that would also be released over the course of like two years. And so you have a writer who's written for maybe like 11 weeks on something mm-hmm. on a show. And then they don't know that they have that job again for another two and a half years. Yeah. And so like, there's no consistency. There's not, and nothing is stable. And uh, that makes it very, very difficult for writers to keep their jobs and like maintain yeah. a writing job. It's this really fucked up situation in which I think the streaming era uh, in freeing sort of television from some of like the the way that sweeps used to work, the way that mm-hmm. a lot of like kind of the way that you would have to like run shows and the way that they aired when you were you were doing it on like fucking cable and they're ad supported has allowed for t- kinds of TV shows and structures of shows that you never could have had, right? I was just, yeah. we're just watching The Bear. Probably the standout episode of The Bear from season two is this like episode about a family Christmas party that's just this absolute like anxious nightmare that's an hour long episode, twice the l- length of a normal episode. And- Oftentimes that's kind of a mixed thing with TV shows, but it works in this one. And it, the fact that it's so much longer actually like helps with like trans. You could you, you could only do that with shows that work the way they do in streaming. That wouldn't have been a thing that you would have gotten to do in in 1993 probably. But while I think like there's a lot of cool stuff structurally that's gotten to come out of that, it's also it's it's made the compensation so much worse. It's made the job so much less reliable. Like it's it's like it's really stark how much more difficult it's become to make a living in tv yeah yeah hundred percent well tv is totally. more popular than ever yeah <laughs> yeah that's like it's making more money than it ever possibly has in the past yeah. um and certainly through streaming like they're not these these studios are not moving to streaming because like they they're early adopters of technology the money is there so they're going yeah. to streaming it's like they're making way more through streaming but writers are getting paid less and less cuz they're finding these like wild west loopholes in streaming um residuals is another one that's like a it the way that residuals work is it is if you have a show that then gets played again uh through syndication or through streaming you should then get a residual check for every time that the ro- episode that you wrote mm-hmm. shows up on television um and it was very easy to track that as it would show up on like our show on American dad. Yeah. I know that it's going to get played on cartoon network. I know that it's going to get played at these other spots. The TBS will rerun it at some point. And I can, I know when those are coming in with streaming, it's much more difficult to determine when somebody watched something, not because those numbers don't exist, but because all these platforms that are created by studios will not give out that information. That information is like in a black box where you have no idea how often a show gets streamed. There's a couple of reasons like people are speculating as to why that might be. One is that either shows are getting watched way more often and people are not getting the proper residuals that they should be, Mm -hmm. or that 
the whole business model doesn't quite work. Yeah, that <laughs> it's then, all a con. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you found out how little people were actually watching television, you, the, this whole uh, all investors, everything, the whole thing would collapse. I don't know which is true. I don't care. I just want to know what the numbers are. It's so like no, a big it, part of a big part of this is is the WGA asking different streaming platforms. You got to you got to be more transparent. You got to tell us how well our show is doing so that we know if people are getting paid properly. Yeah, and it's again, it would be one thing if like writers were getting less than ever and TV was just like dying as a as a thing as a as a as a creative thing that people want. But the there is the money. We know where the money is going. Uh the eight uh major Hollywood studio CEOs uh in 2021 made nearly 3 quarters of a billion dollars in annual salary, which is more than the value of what the WGA and SAG-AFTRA uh, want to take out of them and increase compensation for their members. Um, yeah, for those eight more. guys, I'm going to guarantee you, uh, Ari Emanuel, the highest compensated of these CEOs uh, over at Endeavor, $308 million. And <laughs> to, like, I don't think he made any of your, he's not responsible for any of your favorite shows. Whatever like Lion and the Great, you know, made you made you laugh or cry or like whatever, whatever joke from American Dad keeps you, uh, you know, makes you suddenly start like bawling out laughing while you're driving down the highway. That was not Ari Emanuel. You know, not that, <laughs> neither of those shows were Endeavor. Whatever. You know what I, you know what I'm trying to do here, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ted Sarandos, whatever. Uh, fucking, you know, uh, Bob Iger. Um, uh, all these guys. Like, they're, they're, I mean, fundamentally, like, Bob Iger, one of the big things he did was push the uh, the Flash movie out into theaters. Really <laughs> put a lot of money into that. Thought it was going to be important for the brand going forward. Lost so much money. Lost, yeah, like, just probably disaster. a about as much money as like the writers guild is asking for an increased compensation this year. Like if they just hadn't made that movie. Um, <laughs> so let's talk. You guys went on strike. What has it been? It's been like two months now already. Yeah. It's like day 84 or something 84. like that. Yeah. So a little more than two months. How are you feeling? Like what, what does it mean like physically to be on strike, like going out and picketing and stuff? Great questions, Robert. Hmm. Uh, it's a, uh, it's actually really nice. Yeah. I, I don't want to say like it's um I enjoy it because I would rather be getting paid and, and not being freaking out about the fact that I don't yeah. have a job. But um going out it gives me it gives me a sense of purpose, first of all, each day yeah. to like get up and go out to this to the picket lines. Yeah. Um and you're out there, you're marching around it, you choose your studio, like from the majority of the time I go to Sony or I go to Amazon. Mm. And I know the people there now. It's like going to the yeah. gym every day where you get to know the people there and then you build your community. And so I've got this group of people that like I go there. These are just people that like I happen to talk to because like we'd see a truck going and we're like, oh, I hope that's not a Teamster truck or yeah. whatever. And then and then you just like strike up a conversation with somebody, you start talking and then you find out that this person like ran Malcolm in the middle for eight <laughs> years. And you're like, oh, OK, cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people talk a lot about how the last writer's strike, which was kind of like right when I was getting out of fucking high school they're not far from that point um like a year or two later uh how the last writer strike was kind of what gave us the birth of like a lot of reality tv you could almost yeah. argue there was a degree to which it like was part of trump's rise to prominence right because that's why the apprentice gets yeah. on air because that's a way the studios can get around paying writers but i also wonder on the opposite end like how many shows do we get because of connections people make out at the picket line because like folks meet each other and get talking yeah. and like i do i do wonder if that's like a thing yeah, I, I guarantee it is. I mean, it, it yeah. is shocking how like how quickly you just chum up with people and like yeah. the the 
the contact, I shouldn't call it, it's like, it's not, it's not supposed to be a networking experience, but mm. it just ends up being that. Like you can't yeah. help it. Like you're just talking to people and then all of a sudden your jobs come up and you start talking yeah. about your work. And then people are like, after a little while, like, well, like send me something, like send me some of your mm. writing. And yeah. then you just become buddies and like you start working on stuff accidentally together. And I guarantee that like by the end of this, there'll be writing teams that didn't exist mm. before. And there'll be people who are want to make stuff together. Plus the, the studio pipeline will be empty. So like, they're going to yeah. want to like fill it with, they're going to want to fill it yeah. uh, when the strike ends and guaranteed there's going to be people from the lines who came mm -hmm. up with stuff on the lines who are going to be like, we've got lots like there's, mm -hmm. <laughs> we, what about this? And be like, yes, that buy it. We'll take that. And I, I like just kind of in general, the fact that like, that's sort of the, the hope, right? Like that's actually the thing that can defeat these giant industry colossuses, not just like writing TV shows with other people, but like the solidarity, like the fact that you're building connections with people, the fact that you, there's an understanding of shared interest. You're seeing this, especially like now that like SAG-AFTRA has joined the strike. There's a lot of, a lot of people who are very famous and prominent talking about issues that go well beyond Hollywood, right? The, the 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 incredible amount that executive pay and compensation has increased over the years. The fact that a lot of companies that used to do things of value and employ people and good jobs have been hollowed out uh, for the short-term profits of, you know, vulture capitalists whose job is to, you know, fucking suck money out and hand it to shareholders and shit. Um, like, this is not just a, you know, a lot of this started in the fucking 90s. We've talked about, like... Uh, uh, Jack Welch and GE and kind of like how that company was turned from something that made stuff to something that produced stock value and fired people. Um, yeah. And you're you're getting that all across entertainment right now. And I think this is I think and this is something I think kind of everyone knows on some level. This is an inflection point, right? You know, AI is a part of it. The fact that we're about to see them try to use this technology to um, yes. cut down the number of people they have to pay even further. But it's like this is bigger than than Hollywood. Hollywood is just getting a lot of attention because actors know how to get attention. You know? <laughs> that is the job. Yeah, yeah. That's I, yeah. Writers are good at building the narrative, and actors yeah, yeah. are very good at getting attention. Exactly. And exactly. Yeah. It's like it was a it's a worst case scenario, honestly, for yeah. like for the studios. Just and just because it's no coincidence that UPS uh, is going on strike, that all these companies are going on strike right now, because the same thing's happening across the board, mm -hmm. where it's like this consolidation of power and then consolidation of money, and then it's just like all that you are beholden to when you are at the top of these companies is the shareholders and like yeah. getting them money. And so whatever way you can do that, you do it. And a lot of times the way you do that is that you just fuck everybody at the bottom and figure out how to carve out money from them and bring it, rise it to the top. Um, and so, yes, I think that it's what happened was the WGA went on strike. The WGA is a very strong, good guild, good union mm -hmm. that like does not blink. And, and Everyone saw that and immediately people were on the side of the WGA in a way mm -hmm. that I think no one anticipated that all everybody else in unions is like, no, this is wrong. Like we should, we're dealing with the exact same stuff and universally everyone seems to be on the side of unions right now. Then that's like, we should use that. Like we should, we should ride that wave a little bit. Um, and absolutely they should, because there's, uh, there's so many things that are systemically broken right now. Just happens to be the entertainment industry is the only one that I have. It, yeah. Uh, I have skin in the game on. We had this moment about a week or so ago where, you know, um, a couple of weeks ago that it came out that like some anonymous uh, studio executive told a writer at, I think it was Deadline, 
that their plan was to uh, that the, the WGA's demands were unreasonable and we're just going to kind of wait out until they lose their homes, right? Until yeah. they're on the street and then we'll <laughs> yeah. then we can get them to accept it. And uh, you know, this was right around when SAG was, you know, deciding to strike and Ron Perlman gets on and makes a little video where he basically says, you know, we can burn your houses down. Like there's more than one way to lose a house. And uh, I thought the important thing about sharing that because one of the ways, you know, media works is that there's People, the le- the things that people are willing to listen to and that can like affect them and change their minds is partly dependent on the situational context at the time. This is why so many of like the journalism, much of the journalism I've done the far right, like has been articles that I felt like I had to get out within an hour or two of a shooting because people will pay attention to these these things that are problems that are important. They won't le- if I do a deep dive on how this specific kind of radicalization works normally, but if somebody's just been shot, they'll listen, you know, and that's like unfortunate, but that's the way people are and um there's this i thought what what i thought was important about that is that not that you know ron perlman threatened to burn down a guy's house that's just kind of funny (laughs) but what he was doing there that's really valuable that i think more people need to think about is accepting that when you're saying something like well we just need to wait for writers to lose their homes that's a violent threat that is a threat to harm somebody for your own personal gain. And we shouldn't view that as like fundamentally morally different than saying, I want to go rob a guy with a 38, right? <laughs> like I don't I don't feel like there's a big moral gap between them. And you can get people to actually kind of who maybe wouldn't think about that to think about that this way. And I think that's an important thing to transmit in this time. Oh man, a hundred percent. Yeah. The fact that that what it gives like gives you real context for what they're actually saying when they say we just got to wait them out till they don't have any more money and like it it's really starts to uh, hurt their health and well being <laughs> like yeah you have somebody else being like oh I can hurt your health and well being and you're like <laughs> yeah. okay I get how those are the same thing but but <laughs> but that's not what I, the way I was saying it was it was more removed you see mm-hmm. and so you're absolutely right like having Hellboy come out and be like there's lots of ways to lose a house <laughs> it's like oh shit yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's there, there's like potential right now that I, I'm glad to see recognized. How are you doing? Like just in general with this, because it is, you know, we've talked about all the good parts. There's a lot that's good. This is like, this is a stressful time. Like I'm wondering, uh, yeah. like, you, Thanks, when, man. you wake up and like you hear. <laughs> Thanks for acknowledging that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it's like how you, how you be. <laughs> uh, it sucks. It sucks real yeah. bad. It sucks particularly badly because I loved my job. Yeah. Um, I, when I talk about all these things, a lot of this wasn't happening at my job. My job was, a I had working for an animated show that ran 22 episodes a season. That was, it would get, uh, we knew when we were getting our pickups generally, uh, and it was a system that worked and I was really, really enjoying it and very happy at my job. I was getting paid well. Like I liked everything about it. I felt like it was financially stable and I was getting what I deserved and, I was just happy. And that's not what's happening across like 80% of other shows right now. And so like we left, we left our show in solidarity of other writers because at some point, you know, this, I maybe won't have this job anymore and I'll have Mm -hmm. to go get another job. And also for all the people who are working those other jobs and it's really, really struggling right now to even make ends meet. We know they're watching, they're working on three different shows a year. Like they came and pay their rent. Like we're working on behalf of them, but more importantly, like we're striking on behalf of, all of the other writers who are going to come along after this, like the fact that the 2008 strike happened was the reason that my show is so good and has such good benefits. Mm-hmm. And like why the show is, is comfortable for writers because they fucking went to work and like, they got what they needed 
uh, from the studios, even though it was hard and it was bitter and a lot of them lost their jobs over it. And so now it's just like, even though it sucks and I'm not happy about it, it's, it's our turn to do it. It's like our turn yeah. to make sure that everything works. Yeah, that's such an important detail that like a lot of the people striking, when you, there's been this kind of like bad faith thing. I've seen, I've seen some people on the left do it online where like they'll post some video of like an actor, you know, talking about why they're doing the strike. And be like, this person's net worth is this many millions of dollars. And it's like, yeah. well, they're not striking for them. Like yeah. Ron, Ron Perlman is going to be okay. Ron Perlman <laughs> is not going to be forced out of his home. Yeah. Like that's not why they're doing this because right. I mean, Yeah. That you can have a you can you can have a good job, but also have a sense of the bigger picture and like mm-hmm. a greater a greater good. <laughs> yeah, you can just like care about the art form. You know, yeah. I, I, we're watching journalism get fucking eaten alive right now, yeah. and AI is gonna is is has been a part of like people have already lost their jobs because of this shit. And like the thing that keeps being brought up to me when I'll. I'll talk about it to like family or whatever. It's like, well, you know, they're using it to replace these low level jobs, you know, sum up sports articles or like, you know, this kind of coverage or that kind of coverage. Like, it's not the kind of stuff you do. It's not like investigation. You can't have a machine do that. And it's like, well, yeah, but how do you think people learn to do what I do? Like, part of it is like doing the, like, that's the feeder, right? It's part of what you're saying about like TV writing. It's like they're trying to kill the way in which people learn how to continue this art form. (laughs) hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it, it, there's so many parallels between this and what's happening with journalism yeah. in terms of like, is turning it essentially into a gig economy, which is exactly yeah. what destroyed the news Yeah, or is destroying the news. But like, yeah. yeah, it's, it's the same thing. And, and when you talk about AI, like you, if you were to write an episode of a show and you have a written by credit on it, you get a script mm-hmm. fee for that. Mm-hmm. And ultimately like what the studios want is to just have a piece of shit AI written script to begin with. And then they're not paying a script fee to anybody. And then writers just fix that. Mm-hmm. And so like, yeah, it's a, it's a, all these different like cost saving measures that ensure that no one will ever come up through this industry again and yeah. learn all the things. Yeah. There will still be people who become writers, but there'll be people whose parents are rich. And so they can afford <laughs> to work for free for forever. And yeah. then, and then, you know what? We don't get the bear. Yeah. <laughs> The man. bear and its curiously jacked leading man. Where's <laughs> when's he, where's he get the time? When's he putting down the protein? We're not seeing him chug a protein shake every 20 minutes. You yeah, complained the, about the, this on Twitter, and I agree with you. <laughs> the structure that requires, the like, to get a body like that, the structure you need in your life, and, like, the regiments that you need to follow need to be, like, to a T every single mm-hmm. day. And mm-hmm. there's just, he's too spontaneous. There's too much going on in his life. He doesn't have time. He doesn't have mm-hmm. two hours to mm-hmm. carve out to go yeah. to the gym every no. day. No, this is my only issue. Like, this is what's really <laughs> threatening my support of the WGA. I just need an episode of The Bear where they ex- the, all it is is going through his workout routine. Yeah, he's in the back I, room. He's doing some curls, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, he's got bags of rice back there. He's doing squats <laughs> with them on his shoulders. I, I even, even I want to see him at 3 a.m. in the morning, and I'll buy it. I'll be mm-hmm. at 5 at 3 a.m. in the morning, and he's like going to an anytime fitness or fucking whatever, yeah, and he's exactly. like working out a little bit. I could be like, okay, there it is. Okay, That's when he's doing it. There we go. That's how he fits it in. Let me see him get his BCAAs, you know? Have fucking Richie be like, you taking your pre-workout today? Yeah. Give it. Give me a little bit, you know? Yeah. Um, all right. Soren, you got an out here. Um, do you have anything you want to plug uh, before, like, perhaps a podcast with our with our other former colleague, Dan O'Brien? No. Yeah. No. <laughs> fuck it. Yeah. Fuck it. Yeah. Yeah, I got a show called uh, Quick Question with Dan and Soren. No, Soren and Dan. Oh, God, I'm a headliner. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Quick Question with Soren and Daniel. You can check that out anywhere that you listen to podcasts. It's basically just Dan and I catching up because we live on opposite coasts and we're good mm-hmm. buddies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 
that's about it. Yeah, excellent. Check out Quick Questions with Soren and Dan. Special show. Um, just a thank you. Just a wonderful time, Soren. Thank you so much, My and uh, you know, good luck out there on the picket line to you, to all of the other writers, and to everybody at SAG-AFTRA. Thank you. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is Mia from the very, very near future. Uh, We found out as we were live recording this episode that Teamsters leadership has cut a tentative agreement with UPS to try to avert the strike. So we've we've decided to leave this in and you're going to hear us uh, find this shit out literally in the middle of an interview of what we thought was going to be a really, really, really large strike starting. So enjoy. It's strike season here at It Could Happen Here, uh, the podcast where things fall apart and sometimes you put them back together again. Um, and as as you probably have noticed, presumably from the last interview, maybe from reading the news, maybe from like talking to people who are in unions, we are in a genuinely historic period of labor militancy in this country that is... Effect, effectively, we are now we are we are we are now entering the second phase of the hot summer of 2023. Uh, we used to have hot summers all the time. People knew what that meant. And now it just means like global warming. But long ago in a galaxy far, far away, there are these things called hot summers when everyone would fucking go on strike and there'd be, you know, sort of mass resistance to capital estate. And yeah, we're fucking going back there. And to talk with me about the next series of massive private sector strikes 
that we're about to get is Reese Smith and Oliver Rose, who are rank and file UPS workers and Teamsters, uh, doing the standard disclaimer. <laughs> These individuals do not represent the union or the positions of the union. They are speaking as individuals. Uh, yeah, we have this is this is this is the disclaimer for the lawyers. It is also true. <laughs> um, yeah, but Reese and Oliver, welcome to the show. Hey, yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you much. Yeah, I'm really, really glad we can talk to you. So, all right, uh, the day this is going out, it'll it'll be six days before the Teamsters are potentially going to go on strike and the current contract runs out. Um, can I? Yeah, can we talk a little bit about what? Okay, who who is first? Who is going on strike and what do they do? Yeah, so uh, there's going to be 340,000 UPS workers going on strike, and that's going to be, you know, the inside warehouse workers, and that's going to be the the delivery drivers, um, and also the feeder drivers and the 22-4s, like all of them. Uh, Could you you explain uh, what what the last two are? Yes, yeah. So... 22-4s is a uh, classification of worker where they're kind of half inside um, and half driving. Uh, Something that the union has told us is that there's already been a tentative agreement that that classification is not going to exist anymore. It was kind of a really raw deal for people that found themselves in that position. Um, Shit, what was the other one that I mentioned? 22 feeder drivers, I think. Feeder drivers, yes. So feeder drivers are not your regular package delivery drivers. Um, they drive the big semis that you see from like hub to hub and whatnot, and that's how they deliver. Uh, so those are the uh, the last two classifications that I mentioned. And yeah, we're all going to be going on strike, and well, we are potentially going to be on strike. Um, And if we are, UPS is kind of going to be in a world of hurt because (laughs) it is very hard to replace 340,000 workers in what economists have told me is a tight labor market. (laughs) So, yeah, it's going to be very exciting. Yeah, it's I'm I'm excited. Like, I don't know. You know, it it was funny. So when 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 SAG officially walked off and joined the WGA strike, that was that was the largest strike since hilariously the teamsters went on strike in the in like the year i was born in like 97 and hilariously that is a title that if if this happens they're going to hold that title for like one month before this ups striker places it as the largest strike in the u.s since the 90s yeah yeah it's gonna be wild if we go on strike while uh you know sag after is on strike and while the writers guild are, are on strike that's gonna be over half a million workers on strike in this country at this time and that is just gonna be you know it's gonna be fucking historic right like, yeah and and there's and there's a chance depending on how long these strikes drag out that we get to like september and the big the big three auto uh mm-hmm. the uaw goes on strike and if that happens that, that that will be like the most number of people who've been on strike in this country since like the 50s which yeah. is wild especially you know because this, this is supposed to be a sort of like i don't know it, I, th- I think the sort of the especially interesting thing about this, right, is that actual union density is really low and hasn't been increasing that much. On the other hand, like everyone seems to like unions and everyone wants to go on strike. And I don't know, it's a it's a really interesting sort of set of conditions right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I I uh, I'm very uh, heartened by, 
you know, the the support that unions have garnered, uh, because as you mentioned, you know, we are at a low union density. There was like that labor decline that happened, you know, since the fucking like 70s and 80s, right? Like the backlash to organized labor. Um, I am very hopeful that this uh, this strike wave can kind of turn that around, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, something that I've been thinking about a lot is, uh, you know, it's like, UPS is a is a major uh, major company in a whole logistics sector, right? Yeah, and like we can set that standard for that logistics company, mm-hmm. or like a piece of shit company like Amazon can. So if we win yeah. and we win big, that could absolutely encourage more uh, organizing in those other sectors, leading to an increase of union density. Uh, so hopefully that's like the way forward past all these strikes. Uh, It'd be great. It's sorely needed. Sorely needed. Absolutely. And and even uh, beyond, you know, the logistics industry, you know, I think we can show that, you know, any, you know, company or corporation that, you know, year after year is making these record-breaking profits, you know, while meanwhile there's poor work conditions or even unsafe work conditions, uh, you know, there's pay that does not, you know, allow, you know, us to pay rent, put food on the table you know, that we can just show that, okay, you know, we're done, you know, with giving all of the wealth that we're creating to the company. And now it's going back into our hands. Yeah. And UPS fucking created $13 billion in profits last year. Yeah. Yeah. And that's up from, I was just reading an article this morning in in Jacobin written by a uh, fellow uh, UPS teamster. And that's up from 6.5 billion in, uh, 2019. And they're so, also yeah, giving so they doubled their profit. They've over doubled their profits in like three, they've four years. They've doubled their profits and they keep trying to tell the union that, oh no, I'm just a poor pauper. We don't have money for your demands. <laughs> like we're just, we're just so poor. And it's like, they're meanwhile, you know, they're giving their fucking like CEO and shareholders like dividends and stock buybacks and all of that. In addition to the profits that they are reaping, right? Because profits is just the cream of the crop, right? Like that's everything past business expenses, what they're paying out, like salary. So that's not even being touched. And uh, yeah, no, it's time for us to say we want that. We created that. So I I think that leads into sort of the next thing I wanted to ask about, which is can you talk a little bit about what the sort of specific grievances were that kicked th- that kicked this off? I'm assuming there are a lot because, you know, <laughs> this thing sucks. You know, and there is a wide range of conditions because, you know, for a long time, uh, you know, the contract hasn't kept up with uh, both like economic and non-economic side of things. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and we have kind of two two dynamics where there's, you know, well, over a majority of like part-time workers who aren't getting enough pay or hours, you know, to afford to live. And then we also have, you know, the full-time workers who inside warehouse could be working, you know, 10, 12 hour shifts. You know, we have drivers who are doing, you know, 12 hour shifts and, you know, even up to like 14 hours, you know, every day. And then also getting, you know, uh, contacted to come in, you know, on their day off, having to do six day weeks, uh, you know, of course on the driver's side, you know, we have these escalating temperatures and meanwhile, yeah. there's, you know, no air conditioners in the vehicles uh, and same, you know, thing in the warehouse. Um, cause personally, you know, I'm, I, I work inside warehouse as a loader, 
So I'm spend, you know, virtually all my shift in a trailer loading boxes, and, you know, there's no airflow. Those things, you know, can, you know, be five to 10 degrees hotter, you know, like at a minimum than the yeah. ambient temperature. Uh, last summer, like on a mid 90 day, I recorded, um, 108 degrees, you know, inside the trailer. So, you know, there's not necessarily any kind of protections, uh, currently for that. So, you know, that's one big lack in the contract is having those kind of, you know, heat, heat protection and, uh, you know, preventing yeah, and that, heat and illnesses. That can, yeah. I mean, that can just kill people. And we've talked about on the show before people who've died, like working conditions like that, because, you know, it was, it was too hot, but their bosses were like, fuck you. We don't care. Like keep unloading this and stuff. It, yeah. And it's absolutely tragic. I know we had a, uh, you know, UPS teamster, I believe in California, uh, who died due to the extreme heat conditions last summer. And also yeah. know, um, you know, there was another case where I think a driver stopped at like a convenience store to buy a drink, uh, and you know, was fired for making, you know, off route stop, even though they tell us, you know, take breaks when you need it, but they don't actually yep. mean it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause obviously, you know, you wouldn't be di being disciplined or fired. One, one of the things that I, I saw was part of the negotiations that UPS had offered to be like, oh, we'll put in air conditionings in all new vehicles. And I was looking at this and I was like, this is this is the Clean Air Act loophole. I remember this. If, if you only specify new vehicles, I'll just never replace the old ones. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, with these companies, they're going to be looking for those loopholes. Right. Yeah. And yeah. like, I don't know that I've seen a vehicle that looked new. Um when I'm uh, at my hub, yeah. I'm also an uh, inside worker. And yeah, they all look like they've been around, been around a while. And I don't know that they've been uh, spending the capital to uh, get those new vehicles. So that's absolutely something uh, that we're going to, you know, keep their uh, feet to the fire on, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. And then in terms of uh, other conditions that are like really leading up to this, right now there is a big problem with uh, MRAs. And no, not the MRAs you <laughs> all might be thinking of. Uh, this is a market rate adjustment. Mm. And, and both are um, bad. Both are bad. Both are bad. <laughs> yeah. We are staunchly against both MRAs. <laughs> um, and essentially what an MRA does is uh, it... It sounds good at first, you know, it gives the company leeway to, you know, potentially increase our pay, right? Uh, beyond what's just stipulated in the contract. However, when you kind of get late into the contract, like, you know, towards the expiration date, the base pay that was agreed on for the last contract is no longer acceptable. And while it gives them the leeway to increase our wage, they can always go back down to the lower wage should they choose to. Mm. And uh, last year at the hub that I worked at, um, it was right after peak. In uh, peak season, we were hired on at $27 an hour. Uh, and uh, come February, uh, you know, we're all walking into the job. And there's one of the supervisors there who is frankly looking like she's not having a good time, having to stop to talk to each of us to explain Oh yeah, so we are going to be bringing your pay down to fifteen fifty an hour. Jesus, but don't I know? I know, but don't worry, don't worry. There's an attendance bonus. There's an attendance bonus of one hundred and twenty dollars if you make all your shifts. 
And uh, that really fucking sucked. Like, if you get, like, if you get sick, like, okay, so, like, at this hub that I work at, I work at one of the few hubs that don't have what's called the hourly guarantee. Most hubs have an hourly guarantee. If you're a part-time worker, you have an hourly guarantee of three and a half hours a day. So if they say that there's no work to be done, you can say, I want that hourly guarantee, and they either find you more work to do or they pay that out. Um, And then for full-time workers, that's eight hours. Uh, I work at one of the few hubs that doesn't. It's a classification related to the type of hub that I am at. And uh, so I'm only like at this hub, I work maybe 12 hours a week if I'm lucky. So this is 12 hours a week at $15.50 an hour with an attendance bonus. But if I get sick one of those days, that means I have a paycheck, a weekly paycheck that is going from roughly $200 to like maybe roughly 80 and that is just, it's totally, totally unacceptable. Yeah. Um, the well, way that they can kind going of- on. Like, Yeah, with the plague going on, yes. Being sick is highly likely right now. Um, and yeah, no, they're just kind of able to like yo-yo us around on these wages, like whenever they want. And so a demand that is being circulated uh, in the grassroots of the uh, union, uh, leadership hasn't really talked about it, um, to my knowledge, but there is a, you know, a petition going around to have a starting wage of $25 an hour. And, you know, right now that would only be a, a, cause right now this year I'm making 24 and they didn't do that bullshit. I think kind of in anticipation of the strike coming, they didn't want to make us, you know, more angry. And so that would only be a dollar increase for me, but also it would prevent them from doing that in the, in the future. Right. Yeah. So. And I like, uh, Reese, uh, you know, also was affected by the MRA, but luckily not as severe, you know, my pay went from 26 down to 23 an hour. Uh, and of course, you know, what 10, 11% pay cut also same time inflation goes up, you know, 10%. Uh, yeah, you know, that was very really difficult gonna, and enough, let alone having, you know, your pay getting dropped almost by 50%. Yeah. You know, and there's multiple hubs in the area and they're all just on different pay scales, you know, for the same kind of, you know, same, same area doing the same work. And we had this have these like fluctuating pay scales. You know, I know for us, it was, you know, right after peak season and they're like, oh, thanks so much for the most successful peak season ever. We made record-breaking profits. We couldn't have done this without you. By the way, we're cutting all of your pay. And now, of course, you know, we're getting paid above 25. And, hey, that helped their profits. So, you know, it's absolutely absurd to say, oh, well, you know, we can't afford, you know, these higher wages when they can't. Yeah, they, they doubled they their made, profits they in did, years. Yeah, exactly. They doubled <laughs> their fucking profits. Like, are you kidding me? Like... Jesus Christ. It's like they think we're fucking dumb. It's like, no, like our work far exceeded what you're paying us, like an unimaginable amount. Yeah. And you guys like it was uh, uh, earlier on in the con. Well, not earlier on. I think this happened maybe late June, early July. Uh, It was uh, they leaked. It got leaked their economic proposals for us. And they had the part timers starting at $17 an hour. 17. And like, I just, I don't think that's affordable anywhere. The thing I'm going to mention that I think is, 
I think it's really important, but isn't particularly well understood. So, you know, if you go back to like the original Fight 15 campaign, right? $15 million mm-hmm. wage, like that wage, which was already like kind of nonsense in like 2012, like with inflation, that's like 1930 now. Yeah. So this is, you know, th- this is, this is how much like inflation has sort of deteriorated wages. And, and that, and that's just sort of like, you know, the economic terms, like inflation is like the bundle of goods, right? And that that's not accounting for the fact that, for example, the increase in housing prices has been way higher than the sort of like average rate of inflation, right? Healthcare costs are increasing higher than the sort of quote unquote average rate of inflation. And so like, yeah, it's like, yeah, this sounds like a lot of money. It's fucking not like, nope. it's like simply is not. Like, yeah, I uh, I heard uh, at, a, at a rally not too long ago from one of the speakers for, uh, you know, it was a it was a teamster rally that, you know, we're getting our members hyped and all that. And one of the speakers mentioned that for our city, a minimum wage that could be livable would be twenty six dollars an hour. And I'm just like, yeah, that seems about right. And that's yeah. like the bare minimum. That's like, OK, I can eat enough. I can pay my rent and I probably don't have a whole lot left over. So, yeah, especially when we have, you know, like average rent, you know. For one bedroom, you know, what, around like $1,500, you know, Jesus these days. Christ. And so many landlords want, you you know, want three times, you know, that rent and income. So, you know, I was actually just kind of, yeah, writing, you know, or, you know, doing the math last night. I was just like, oh, okay. So on my hours, I would actually need $43 an hour, you know, oh. just to, <laughs> yeah. you know, be making three times the average monthly rent. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So that's definitely why, you know, $25, you know, an hour is the minimum, you know, Mm -hmm. that, you know, I think we can settle for. I would love to see it higher, but also recognize, you know, well, you know, maybe 25 still not quite cutting it, you know, in a more urban area, but, you know, there's going to be a lot of people where that's, you know, significant gains are going to help so much, you know, to meet their material needs. You know, definitely have to, you know, consider this as, you know, big picture. This is a national agreement. And, you know, we got to get that really solid foundation and then we can expand from there. Yeah. Well, what the, f- sorry. As, as, as you were talking, I got a thing saying that the Teamsters have settled. What? All right. I think. Tentative agreement? Oh Hold my on. gosh. What the oh, fuck? I knew they were back at the, uh. Table Back at the negotiation table. Jesus well, Christ! Shit. They've only been at the negotiation table for like four hours. Yeah. Uh, okay. What is okay? In well, this I got to check some signal shots here. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Well, all right. I don't know if we're gonna leave this in, but uh, yeah, we've discovered live <laughs> on air that. Yeah, Teamsters win historic UPS contract. Uh, well, we'll, oh boy. we'll see. Yeah, I'm also looking at this and see one of the. Yeah, I'm the at the uh, teamster.org uh, website where they have an update on it. Uh, yeah, and at least, you know, speaking of uh, wages, at least uh, the first thing that I'm seeing is uh, existing part-timers will be raised up to no less than $21 per hour immediately. And part-time seniority workers earning more under a market rate adjustment would still receive all new general wage increases. Yeah, yeah, this is... Uh, I'm not stoked on those wages. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm I'm definitely I am 25 or bust on this. 
Yeah. All right. So that does, uh, that will change things. That definitely changes the timeline. Because this still has to be sent out to be voted on and approved by membership. Yeah. And uh, what we learned um, at the, uh, there was a call not too long ago where they kind of explained the process of it. So in the event that they would reach a tentative agreement, that gets sent out to us, we vote from home, and it takes about three weeks for it to ratify. There is still a possibility that membership could vote to reject it, in which case they would be going back to the bargaining table. Mm -hmm. And uh, we could potentially be going on strike then. But this does set it back by now three weeks. Um, It'll be interesting to see uh, what the uh, TDU, which is the uh, Teamsters for a Democratic Union, which is a reform caucus inside our uh, our union. It'll be interesting to see what their line is on this. Um, so, oh my gosh, what a what a bomb <laughs> drop to get in the middle of a podcast yeah. about this. <laughs> yeah, like okay, unfortunately should... can't even speak to it uh, since skimmed a little bit of it and. Yeah, yeah. Is it, do they actually have the full agreement out, or are they just do they just have so, like this stuff? They will not have the full agreement out. Um, something that we've been having a little bit of frustrations with within our union is that um, we do not have open bargaining. Oh, so bargaining what the happens. Fuck? Uh, yeah, yeah, bargaining happens behind closed doors. Jesus Christ! And they occasionally give us updates about what's happening, but we don't really get to see the full picture until mm-hmm. we're going to be voting on it. And uh, I obviously think this is bad for a number of reasons. Yeah. Um, one and a, a big primary one is these contracts that are negotiated. Um, I was about to go get my copy of the contract so I could show you, and then I remembered this is a podcast, and that's not actually going to be helpful for uh, <laughs> hey, people we do, listening. We do, we, we, do, we do visual bits on this podcast all the time. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> so the size of our pocket, uh, our contract is about the size of a pocket Bible. Jesus. It is, it is very, very big. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's written in that legalese and stuff like that, and so it's not very mm. accessible. Um to yeah. most of our uh, most of our members, uh, and so you know, if we had open bargaining, if we had consistent like updates, where like you know our union leadership would be like, all right, so this is what we've agreed upon so far. This is what we've rejected. This is what it all means. You know, in the lead up to like whether or not you vote no, membership could have a far more comprehensive uh, understanding of uh, yeah. what is in the contract instead of. Waiting until the very end as we got little bits, pieces, and snippets. Um, and then being like, okay, well, read this and decide how you feel. Yeah, I mean, that's, it, I don't know. If, if It feels like a system that's just sort of kind of designed to like railroad people into signing whatever contract uh, negotiators agree to. Which yeah. Which is kind of a disaster. And without that transparency, I mean, you know. You know, all of us rank and file members are, you know, essentially being removed from the process, you know, being involved in the decision making, uh, you know, stipulating uh, what's going to do it, you know, to meet our needs. What what do we need, you know, out of these, you know, five year contracts? 
And, you know, I think it was just, you know, a few days ago, got, you know, get an update from the local, you know, basically a week before, you know, the contract ends, um, you know, and they're, you know, talking about, this is like one of the most transparent contracts there's ever been. There's all these updates and, you know, there's more rank and file, um, you know, members involved in the bargaining. And it's like, well, that's great. You know, that shows, you know, how far, you know, we've come, I guess, but also <laughs> it's still just, it's kind of sad to think that, you know, this, this process that's all banned by NDA is the most transparent, transparent yeah. it's been. And, and also the fact, the fact that you're finding this out live on air from like their press release that they put out on Twitter. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Absolutely absurd. Um, yeah. So it seems like this is a, uh, this is an agreement that is going to be um, pushed by union leadership as a vote to vote yes on, uh, which is a kind of a far cry from earlier in uh, in July when, you know, you when the Teamsters were telling UPS, you need to present us with either an agreement that we like actually agree with or present your last best final offer by July 5th. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, we'll we'll see how uh, how the uh, rank and file react um, in the 2018 contract. Uh, I know that the uh, TDU um, tried to uh, organize a uh, vote no campaign, and um, they did get a simple majority of uh, the membership to vote no. However, at the time, and this has now been changed, but at the time. Uh, in our constitution, um, it would require a two thirds majority to have uh, Wait, rejected no it and go was on it? strike. Oh, Jesus Christ. Was it, was it, was that, was that because it was, was that because it has one of those weird, like electoral college systems or was it like you need two thirds to project a contract? It was a, it was a, you need two thirds. Um, that oh has God. been changed, uh, yeah. uh, when, when Sean, when the reform slate was elected and they had their uh, Teamsters convention, they changed the constitution so that it would be a simple majority. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, we'll we'll see uh, what TD the line that TDU wants to take, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, yeah, we'll see. This uh, this certainly puts puts a wrinkle in things. I'm gonna be honest. I was actually really looking forward to strike pay because my strike pay would have paid more than my actual oh my job God. does. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's like, I mean, I think there's a few things that we can sort of immediately talk about from this. One is that it doesn't like nothing they've put out here from what I've read so far. I'm reading. I mean, literally, I'm reading from the the Teamsters like website it says they're doing anything about market rate adjustments at all. Mm hmm. And the second thing is that, you know, I mean, we, we, you know, we were talking earlier before we knew that there was a strike about sort of the impact of this on the entire class. And it really looks like both the Teamsters and UPS, like, you know, really wanted to cut a deal as, you know, part of part of this attempt to keep everything going and to keep this stuff from mm -hmm. happening, which I mean, I think makes sense. Right. If you're you know, if, if you're UPS. You don't act like we're, we're we're having an actual sort of like workers insurgency, like having 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 a summer this hot, like isn't good for 
Like it isn't good for UPS. It's arguably not good for some of the more sort of like some of the more sort of conservative uh, union leaderships either who do who unlike a lot of workers do not want to be on strike because yes. that like that cut that cuts into the sort of war chest of capital that they have to manage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, they're, you know, they're just recently on Twitter or excuse me, X. It's X now. But just recently on Twitter, there was a fair amount of uh, strike discourse. Uh, And there was like, you know, labor activists and stuff saying that, you know, like it's good. It's good for, you know, if they reach a tentative agreement that, uh, you know, saw this. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. If they reach a tentative agreement that, you know, makes those material gains, it's better to not go on strike. And like, I, I know, I know. Like, and to me, that's like a little bit wild because one, there is so much and we could demand so much more, but also like, you know, collective action, you know, in order to be consistent, to be good at it, it requires you to undertake it. Right. Like, and, you know, when I think about like how our local is, um, they have a very service model orientation to unionism Mm -hmm. as opposed to an organizing model. And I, you know, I was really under the impression that this uh, potential strike could have uh, kind of like, you know, lit a fire under their ass and like kind of got back into like the organizing aspect of unionism, right? Uh, And like, they weren't that great at that. I swear, sometimes we would talk to them about like, hey, so like, have you tried like mobilizing members? Have you tried like showing up at the gates? Have you like, you know, you can like, there's like programs out there where you can text your entire membership about like, you know, come to this like contract update. And it's like we were just speaking a different language. Like they just had no idea. Like they had no idea. And they would look at our union meetings where like, you know, we represent like I think over like a like I think well over like a thousand workers. I don't have the yeah. numbers on that, so I'm not going to get more specific. Uh, but like well over that, and they would look at our union meetings where we have maybe fifty to seventy people, and they're just kind of like, "Well, this is just as good as it's going to get." Um, yeah, and that's nonsense. Like it's nonsense. Like- it's nonsense. Like you know, like back in the fucking like. You know, from like the tens to the fifties, union meetings would bring in just so many people and they don't have anywhere near the like technological advance advantages that we have now. And it was just, it's very much of like, yes, you tell us about your grievances. We get those filed and we do make those like wins for you. And like, that's, that's good. Like, you know, there are some unions that barely do that much. And the fact that they do that is great. But like, you know, at my hub, I remember I was uh, I was talking to my carpool and he didn't even know who his steward was. And I'm like the only person that gives him updates about what's going on in the union. And that's just because like when I started working at UPS, I was just like, yeah, I'm going to go to these fucking union meetings. I'm going to find out what's going on. I want to be involved. And most people, you know, it's just a job for them and they don't know all the things that a union can provide for them. Or how a union can back them up. And part of that's because, you know, union leadership, you know, has decided that that's not something they real they don't need to be as engaged with the members as they could be. Yeah. Well, and, and, so, and, and, and there's yeah. there's a second thing there too, which is like, okay, if you are like 
you know, if, 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 if you are someone, you know, if you were in a position of leadership and you're in your position of leadership because there's incredible, there's base, there's like really, really low attendance for union elections, right? Really mm-hmm. low turnout, which is, which is usually true, right? Like union, union election turnout tends to be just atrocious. You mm-hmm. don't actually want more people being involved because the more people that are involved, the more likely it is that a bunch of people are going to show up to an election. Someone's going to, you know, and someone's going to look at one of the deals you cut and it's going to be like, what the fuck are you doing? Right. So there, there's, there's, there's a lot of sort of perverse incentive structures in terms of like just to sort of the basic organizational and electoral structure that gets you, you know, like people cutting deals and calling and, you know, like cut, try, trying to cut off the sort of like hot summer at its knees. Yeah, I have uh, something funny that's kind of related to that. So uh, when we were voting to authorize a uh, to authorize a strike, right, you know, we we did it and all of that. And, uh, you know, Sean O'Brien announced that there was going to be voting at the gates and our uh, our local um, (laughs) initially was like, oh, no, we're just going to have people come to the hall between the hours of eight and ten on two specific days and we'll do voting that way. Eventually they did change it after they got pressure, I think probably from up top and below. But uh, (laughs) one of the members who is involved was like, oh no, 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 like it'll be better if it's just the people that are motivated enough to go because they're the ones that are gonna like vote the thing on through. And that was just, that was wild to me, uh, seeing that sort of perspective. Because if we, you know, if the union is there, if like, you know, our union reps, our business agents, if they're there, if they're constantly engaging membership, then we will all be on the same page. Like, they're the ones that have all of the, like, you know, the, like, technical information. They're the ones that can really talk to, uh, they can talk to people about, You know, like this is how much UPS is making in profits. This is like what they're paying our CEO. This is all of this. You deserve more and we're going to fight for it. And if they had those constant interactions, we would all be on the same page and we wouldn't have to worry about, well, if there's increased voter turnout, it might make the vote kind of iffy. You know, like. Yeah, there's definitely, you know, that's been one of my biggest gripes is around, uh, you know, communications particularly, you know, from the local, uh, which is kind of practically non-existent. And, you know, it's, there's so many, even like between new hires and, you know, even people have been there a few years as part-timers, like don't know their rights under our contract. Yeah. And, you know, it was only because of organizing and, you know, talking with people that I know those rights and can, you know, then share that, you know, knowledge. Uh, with other, you know, teamsters, but it's kind of like, well, why, why are we having to do this? And I mean, of course, yeah. internal or organizing, you know, knowledge is super important, but it'd be nice, you know, why, you know, why isn't there a, you know, like a, a welcome packet? Why are there, you know, yeah. not more, maybe not like full meetings, but at least something where, you know, our union officials can meet with rank and file members. And I think I'm partly, you know, speaking to that because, you know, the shift I work is during union meetings. So, you know, attending those is not, you know, not quite feasible, uh, you know, for me or other people on my shift. And I know that's also kind of seems like it's led to this, like some contempt for part-timers, like, oh, we're not involved, you know, we don't care, but it's like, we don't, you know, we don't necessarily know, you know, about the meetings or that, you know, there's the scheduling conflict or, you know, again, talking about like, we don't even know what our, you know, basic rights are, you know, yeah. under our contract. 
No, it's like a, like you can't you can't not explain to people you can't not onboard people and then complain that they're not onboarded. Like, come on, <laughs> this is yeah, absurd. Like Self fulfilling prophecy there. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm, you're creating mm-hmm. the outcome that you think you know already exists because you're not engaging members. So there there was another thing that I wanted to talk about, which is that there's been a lot of like. I don't know. I, 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 I've been seeing this in sort of various places in, in the discourse talking about the strike, which is that there's a lot of people who basically are holding on to the notion that A, people don't want to strike and B, that like striking is bad and that you should want to do it as little as possible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this pisses me off for like a lot of reasons, one of which is that like my grandma was a teamster and she was a she was a union punch card operator like back in like the 70s and 80s. Um, and, you know, my grandma is like, like not like a leftist, right? Like she, we have, we have to stop her from giving money to the fallen gong. Like she's so, you know, this, this, this is the kind of issue we're dealing with here. Right. But like, she loved going on strike. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and that's the thing that like my family, who's not like particularly sort of labor friendly or like, oh yeah, no, we love going on strike because that's, that's why she has insurance. Right. It's because, oh, yeah. they, because the teamsters would go on like any the 80s teamsters would go on strike. And I, I, you know, and, and I think I think that's another thing that's like this, you know, this kind of, well, okay, there, there's two ways to look of it, at it. One is that it's a fundamental misreading of the situation that's happening right now, which is, no, people absolutely love going on strike. People are really excited to go on strike. People who, people whose politics are not like, you know, people whose politics are not aligned with the left really like going on strike and are really excited about it. And this is something that's happening sort of irrespective of, there's, there's been a bunch of wildcat strikes. This is something that's been happening sort of irrespective of like, actual union membership as people want to do this. We've also seen sort of the great resignation over the last few years of, you know, what is effectively a massive, like part of the reason the conditions for labor are like this strong right now is because there's been this massive informal strike of people just sort of, of people, you know, walking off the job, like deciding their job fucking sucks and quitting. And that's been putting a lot of pressure on employers. And, you know, and simultaneously, you know, I, I think I think the, the reading of this that's more sort of cynical is that, like, these people know this, right? They know that people want to go on strike and they're looking at it and they're terrified. And their conclusion is, like, we have to fucking stop. You know, we, we, we have to stop the, with this wave of labor militancy before it gets going, mm-hmm. because if it gets going, you know, if you're like if you're, you know, like a, a sort of centrist liberal, liberal politician or if you're like a conservative union bureaucrat, like that's terrifying for you. Then there's, you know, there's there's a lot of people who have a lot to lose if if the, if, you know, like if if a really sort of a precedented wave of labor militancy gets going. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, when I think of, uh, you know, people and wanting to go on strike, uh, I guess I'll touch on two things here, which is that, you know, at my hub, whenever we talk about going on strike there, you know. There is a sense that, yes, people really want it. And also they're really worried that they aren't going to be able to. Um, That like, you know, we're going to get this tentative agreement that most people will want and it's not going to happen. And we've had all of this buildup and, you know, it's going to kind of, you know, fall flat. Um, and then, you know, also I've, I've spent a fair amount of time on, uh, on picket lines as like a community supporter and, you know, there is something incredibly magical about being on strike. Yeah. Uh, you know, like there's often just this outpouring of community support for the workers, right? And workers get to see that their labor is extremely valued by the larger community. Um, and I think that is really important. I think that builds bonds of solidarity. 
And you get to see the other unions who come out in support of your strike. And then, you know, you go and support them. And then it creates, yeah, it creates these bonds that, you know, aren't really, they can be achieved without it, but it's just so much more bonding. I guess I'm going to use the term bonds a lot, but, and there really isn't a substitute for it. Uh, And, you know, and then people also, they get to experience the power that they have as, you know, as labor, right? Like they begin, they realize it's like, oh, wait, no, like I'm on strike and this company is like, the shit is hitting the fan for them because they don't have us who know how to do our jobs in there doing them, right? Like, you know, I was uh, at a picket line for uh, this other company, um, a few years back and like the workers there on the line were constantly giving me updates. They'd be like, yeah, man, it's wild. I heard in there that like, you know, the managers are trying to do our jobs and like none of what they make is edible and they're throwing <laughs> yep, it all yep, away. Yep. And machines like, are breaking. The machines are breaking. Like, yep. and so they're one, they're seeing that, yes, their labor is specific. It has value. It is necessary and yeah. crucial. And they are getting that community support. And, you know, there's not a lot of other opportunities for those realizations to happen. So. Yeah. And I mean, this is something that like, I mean, I've literally seen this, like our our teachers union, we've talked about this Mm -hmm. a bit on the show, but like our our local teachers union in Chicago, like got, you know, they got a reform caucus and they're not perfect, but you know, they're, they're much better than what was happening before. And you know, and that one of the things they do is they've they've been on strike a lot of times in the last about decade, like decade, decade, bit over a decade, and it changed the city. Like Chicago is a, you know, was for I mean decades and decades and decades this just like interminable machine run like neoliberal hellhole, and you know I mean I'm not going to say like Chicago is like some kind of like you know like beacon of the left or whatever, but like. The city is just different after it, and, they, and it wasn't just the one strike. They kept, they kept going on strike, and they kept going on strike. And you know, you can you can look at the quality of their wins, and you can sort of like, you know, like I mean, there's that like I, I know, I mean, like I know people who like have quibbles with sort of like exactly what happened in the contract negotiations, but like, you know, they they went on strike multiple times and they won, and that really. And, and the, the, you know, and the other thing that happens, the thing you were talking about, right, is like suddenly you're at these pickets and like the entire community is showing up, like everyone's showing up with food. Like it, mm-hmm. it, it changed it changed the city. And, you know, and, and I think this gets at another thing I think is, is important here about and what's, you know, sort of the potential that's being averted is the interesting thing about this strike wave is that we've had a number, you know, we've we, we had like the whole we had sort of the wildcat teacher strikes in 2017. We've had a couple of a couple of waves of teacher strikes, but like most of the strikes that have been happening are public sector unions. We haven't had these giant strikes other than basically, I mean, there, there, there's been some, right? There's, there's, there's been a lot of strikes in the healthcare sector, but we haven't had a strike like at this scale in the private sector in, you know, outside basically like the, the Teamsters and like the Teamsters and like the Guild are like the only two big unions on that scale who go on strike, like even kind of regularly, even that's like, that's like a once in like 20 year thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And so. I don't know. Like, I think I think just sort of the the potential of what's being lost here is enormous. If if what happens is that this deal, which is like, I don't not great from what I've seen of it from the initial things, although, again, like we still don't fucking know what's in this deal and we're not going to for like 
a bit at like at least until they fucking release the thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, we'll 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 have to see, um, you know, what's what's in that agreement. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, at least just, you know, for, you know, my own views, you know, it's any, you know, company, you know, that's paying you poverty wages or, you know, there's unsafe work conditions and it just seems like, well, on principle, there needs to be a work stoppage. Like that's, you know, if you're going to treat people that way, that's just the result. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Something that I'm like kind of thinking about right now is like, so like the 2175, I believe it is for part-time workers, you know, that is a significant increase from the 1550, but we're just at the beginning of our five-year contract. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, I feel like, you know, like it's being viewed as like, oh, well that's like, okay for right now. It's, you know, kind of not. But it's really just not going to be okay in five years when we have to have these contract negotiations again. And because we're not starting out with a solid $25 an hour, mm-hmm. we're going to be playing catch up to what is not really okay right now. Like, it's just going to, like, it's like, it's just going to keep happening, you know? By the time we get to uh, 2028, you know, we'll probably get up to $25 an hour maybe. But by that time, you know, who knows what we're actually going to need in order to survive in this economy. Yeah. So, you know, I feel like that wage is just not, it's not proactive enough for what we're going to need in the coming years. And, you know, in there, there is stuff about like, you know, wage increases for like, you know, however long you've been there and stuff like that. But yeah, I, you know, you know, like I graduated from high school in like 2008 and I just feel like the, my entire life, the economy has just been fucking shitty. And when they tell me the economy is great, my finances are still fucking shitty. Yeah, I mean, look, like like, this is one of of the old 2011 slogans that like, well, I guess there's also 2008 slogan that like people need to fucking remember is that the G- when the bank takes your house, GDP grows up, right? Yeah. The, oh, ac- yeah. the economic indicators that we have are are you know they they are bourgeois economic indicators, right? Like they are they are they they are designed to measure how well capital is being extracted from you. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 It definitely so. no reflection on our actual you know day to day lives. You know what. What our needs are. Just, oh, yeah, and hey, some people know, made money off of your labor, so things are good. Unless yeah, you know you're the laborer. Yeah, <laughs> and like you know, I think I think another thing that like happens a lot is like, yeah, like you know, it, it is entirely possible that a bunch of people who are you know making like seventy thousand dollars a year are fucking doing great right now, and it's like, well, bully for them, like <laughs> we're fucking not. Also, <laughs> yeah, <sighs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and speaking to it, you know, to the, you know, what does things, you know, look five years out, which, you know, with the, it seems like, you know, things just kind of get exponentially worse. You know, I don't know what, you know, the environment, you know, what our climate's going to be. I don't know what, yeah. you know, inflation or food costs, you know, it's going to be. And, you know, so far, you know, I'd need to see the, you know, what the tentative agreement has on that market rate adjustment. And then there's also the cost of living adjustment too, which, at least what I believe is, you know, it doesn't kick into like you've been there for five years. 
I guess you just God. aren't living for those first five years. I don't know. It's great that uh, I, you know, that and, my utilities and my rent waves my bills for the first five years yeah, that I yeah. worked for UPS. Someone, someone, some, someone, so someone also like go find the statistics on how many people get fired at four years and 11 months. Like, yeah. And that's, yeah. I mean, that's also when the, uh, the pension, uh, minimum invest- yeah. investment time is five years. You know, that's also mm-hmm. something I've thought about. Well, what happens on uh, four years and 11 months? Is that yep. when, you know, now we've got a bigger target on my back? It's like already a thorn in their side. Uh, <laughs> they, 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 they did the thing I said they were going to do where it says UPS will equip in cab AC and all large de- uh, delivery vehicles, sprinter vans and package cars purchased after January 1st, oh, 2024. Yep. Fans are getting, cars are getting two fans and an induction vent in the cargo compartment, which is good, but also not air conditioning it's not air conditioning and it gets very hot in those trailers and yeah no it's like yeah in all our except all you know all things purchased after january 1st 2024 yeah so it's just like you know they'll they'll, yeah it's like they will will start purchasing cars again in like 2094 yeah yeah nothing in there about retrofitting those cars well i think i think cars i think they're well, okay, I, I I don't know. This is another thing. Like, it, it's it's unclear to me exactly what a lot of this means because mm-hmm. we, you know, like we we we're like we we can't look at the actual contract, which is yep. like, uh, yeah. So this is like, we're, we're we need we need to I guess also like preface this like this is like we're not doing legal analysis of this. This is our speculation based on what we're reading. Uh, this is this none of this con- constitutes binding legal advice, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Yeah, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Hey, I just work here. Uh, yeah, uh, another thing that I'm, like, noticing um, in this contract. Uh, so another big uh, uh, grievance that was had was the lack of full-time positions. And yeah. uh, so, like, if you want to get a full-time inside job, you know, there is a seven to ten year wait list for that, right? So mm-hmm. this... Uh, This tentative agreement um, stipulates that there will be a creation of 7,500 new full-time Teamster jobs at UPS and the fulfillment of 22,500 open positions. Um, But it doesn't specify if that's going to be for inside work or for, uh, you know, more, more drivers. And, you know, I have, I have epilepsy, so I am not going to be a driver. Uh, That's just doesn't seem ideal for me and yeah i would i would like to see some uh numbers on uh so that wait list is that going down like because that's like what i'm waiting for is to be able to you know snag one of those full-time inside positions but i don't know and like when you think about you know 7500 full-time positions it's also worth to keep in mind that ups employees 340,000 people. So it's like. Yeah, wait. So, yeah, so that's a 2%. Yeah, it's like. It's, yeah, it's like 2%. And like, it, admittedly, like, you know, 40% of that workforce is already like they're full time drivers. But so that's like 60% of that is part timers. And, you know, I'm not going to make anyone do more math, but. 7,500 for 60% of 340,000 people is, 
Yeah, it's, it's not 3, as it's exciting as just seeing that number by <laughs> yeah, itself. It's, it's, yeah, right. Yeah, it's three like, percent, which is like a shock. <laughs> like, like you know, and this goes into something you know I've I've noticed um, you know with you know coworkers, which is always talking about you know why well, you know we need more hours, and that mm-hmm. you know that that is true to a degree. You know, really though, it's like well we need more pay. You know, I. You know, I think that's, you know, would be a sign, you know, when it can be, you know, like a really strong union is that, you know, we can even just say, yeah, you know what? Maybe people shouldn't be working 70 hour weeks. Yeah. You know, maybe we should cap that at 30 with, you know, PT pay that, you know, pays like full time. But of course, you know, we're not there. You know, we need these jobs that can actually provide, you know, definitely not going to knock that, but. You know, would definitely yeah. like to see that overall shift kind of just, you know, in our culture of, you know, we don't need to work more to have our needs met. I, I think it's also really sort of important to understand about UPS jobs is like you're fucking destroying your bodies, especially if you're like if you're if you're if you're one of the people sorting packages like you are lifting like. You were lifting like thousands of packages a day. These things can weigh up to like 80 fucking pounds. They can and, weigh up to 150. Oh, even 150. Jesus Christ. Never mind. Yeah, okay. 150 is yeah, the limit. Uh, oh, 70 God. pounds is where um, you get a team you know, lift. You can do team lift. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. You know, like talking to a feeder driver recently was talking about having a, you know, two of those trailers hooked up and weighing in at something like 17,000 pounds on the scale. Jesus. Obviously, you know, that's the cabin engine included, I believe. Um, but, you know, that's not my world. I'm kind of completely unfamiliar with that side of things but still yeah it's like a lot of weight you know because we're carrying so many packages every day yeah Yeah, and it's a lot of wear and tear on the body and management's always pushing you to move faster too yeah like i had a uh a worker um who is a feeder driver for another hub and she was telling me that a supervisor there was telling newly hired part-time employees that it's actually safer to work faster instead of slower what yes yeah that makes no fucking sense no fucking sense at all and like one of the reasons they have an incentive to make us work really fast which is that the full-time soups get a parts per hour bonus uh depending on how fast we go so it, you know they will harass you into working faster even though you know we're moving mm-hmm. these thousands of fucking packages they'll harass us to move faster um so that they get a bonus off of the packages that we handled and moved yeah, i mean like yeah, just it's... last week in the you know i think it was like mid 90s outside or something you mm-hmm. know we're not getting oh do you need water do you need to rest it was oh you're not working fast enough like your packages per hour is you know too low you know it's that kind of constant you know harassment or you know maybe sometimes like you know i know my supervisor is a little bit more subtle about it you know uh versus you know outright being like oh you need to work faster because that's the thing is in our contract you know there's no kind of productivity quota you know Mm -hmm, we, we work safe we follow the methods that's something i really try and you know really focus on because you know ideally you know, I want to, you know, I would like to be here uh, longer. Um, yeah. Silly enough, uh, that is for a job with terrible conditions, but, you but know. But also, it's I'm, a job uh, that has a pension. Like, and that, yeah, that's the big thing. And it's like, I don't, you know, what's a pension going to do if, you know, I'm, 
you know, have some kind of, you know, grave injury from, from the job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like you're fucking no pension, or, but still. Yeah. You're dead with heat exhaustion. Like, like well, pension doesn't pay yeah. out. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just, yeah, it's wild. It's wild. Uh, man, I, uh, am going to be really excited to see how this, uh, how this vote goes. Yeah. It's yeah. going to be an um, interesting day at work. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. I'm sure that I'll have those people that know that I know about the union come up and talk to me to ask me what I think about it. Uh, cause I'm the only person they know that knows anything about the union. Cause as we talked about earlier, union reps just are barely ever there. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Man, that's, I'm just now really thinking about that 7,500 full-time jobs, 3%, two or 3%, depending on the metric that you're looking at. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not enough. No, no, no. Wild. Wild. And now that this is a, at best, a delayed opportunity for a strike to build those, as we talked about earlier, those necessary necessary muscles that need to be exercised um and that's at best you know we might have we might have missed it uh yeah yeah we'll we'll see we'll see yeah Uh, that that fucking sucks um (laughs) yeah (laughs) what a curveball to get for the podcast (laughs) (laughs) oh well unless unless you have anything else you want to talk about um yeah, we're going to wrap up this incredibly chaotic episode of It Could Happen Here, in which we discovered the chaos of a not open bargaining process and what that looks like live on air. Yep, yep. <sighs> Exciting times, but yeah, I think uh, I think I'm good. I feel like I hit all my notes and some that I wasn't even planning on hitting because we had this uh, new information. So, <laughs> right. Oh, good Lord. And I was like, okay. it, it couldn't have been like an hour earlier. So I could have at least read no, it first. No, it's literally in the middle of the record. Yeah, now I'm going like, to go. Oh, like, we got to like, look over some this? information. Like, Bear with Why us. Podcast? <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh. Well, you know, you can uh, join us next for the live analysis of the over 300-page contract. (laughs) (laughs) That we got, like, just the highlights of. Yeah, but thank you to you both for, thank you to both for coming on. And, yeah, I guess guess if the strike happens, we can talk to you again. Or maybe also if it doesn't. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you for having us on. yeah, I'd love to stay in contact to talk about if we do go on strike or, you know, if we don't. Would love. I would absolutely yeah. be open to a follow-up on that. And yeah, okay, so where where can people go if they want to support like the strike or also potentially the rank and file workers who are trying to like make sure it happens? Yeah, I would say that a uh good place to follow uh or like a good uh source i guess to follow um would be to follow the teamsters for a democratic union um if there is going to be any movement that is uh in the union that's organized it's going to be coming from them most likely um so they are the better version i would say to follow on that front um and of course you can still follow uh the regular uh teamsters um page and stuff like that to see what's going on but 
Yeah, yeah, it's going to be weird. I I don't know what the TDU line <laughs> is going to is going to be on this. Yeah. So, I'd like we'll see, and you know, hopefully, you know, if we can strike, obviously, yeah, come out to, yeah, support your fellow workers, and you mm-hmm. know, too, we'll also be able to coordinate, you know, with uh, rank and file union uh, reps, um, you know, what kind of needs there might be out on the picket line. Yep. Yeah, also, and yeah, thank you uh, yeah, very much for, for having us. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Um, yeah, this has been It Could Happen Here. Uh, go on strike. Uh, don't let your leadership tell you not to go on strike. <laughs> Simply do the thing and organize so you can do it again. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to fifteen hundred dollars again sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and game sense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Ah, it could happen here. A podcast that is right now happening in your ear. It could happen here. That's what we should call it. Garrison, we're changing Hello. the name. We're, oh, really? we're rebranding our valuable, valuable oh, title. Uh, completely <laughs> moving, moving overnight to a whole new thing, um, based on a whim, you know. Masterful on... gambit, sir. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a this has been a fun week. We're all laughing a little bit at Elon Musk, but we have something serious to talk about today, and that is everybody's favorite fascist governor, Ron DeSantis. Garrison, you and I spent. Just way too much time last week talking about Meatball Ron, um, and now now we're back. Now we're back to because he he keeps meatballing. Meatball Ron is is balling and meeting. Yeah, so we wrapped up like a like a two part episode 
on uh, Ron DeSantis' use of uh, fast rave aesthetics. Um, and then, like, two days later, the funniest thing happened. <laughs> uh where he just decided to basically basically uh post son and rads so we're gonna we're gonna get to that um but first there's a whole bunch of other information that's come out th these these past like really three days that have kind of that are actually giving more context to what's going on at the DeSantis campaign because stuff doesn't look too good actually it act he he kind of looks like he's losing everything as he slowly watches it all crumble so Let's see. Let's let's start by talking about everyone's favorite topic, campaign finances. I know this is what what everyone tunes in to listen to. Yes, we love campaign finances. Yeah. So last week, uh, the public finally got a glimpse at DeSantis's campaign finances. Um, the financial disclosures showed that DeSantis had about twice as much staff uh, as Donald Trump. And uh, as of last week, you the know, Florida Garrison, you just said that and I. I imagine in my head for a second that you were referring to the amount of staff infections he's had versus Donald Trump. That's not true, no. <laughs> Trump's definitely had more staff infections. There's almost no way, yeah, that Trump is not leading in the staff infections category. Please, I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> um, but uh, as of last week, the Florida governor had already spent about 40% of the $20 million uh, fundraised from April yep. to June of 2023. So... The campaign's spending rate was averaging more than $212,000 per day, which is an astronomical cost for a campaign for someone like running for president basically the, for the first time. Yeah, um, this far out too from the, the season proper hit. Yeah, it's absolutely absurd. Um, the inflated number of staff, uh, heavy use of private jets and luxury event venues has his campaign essentially just burning through cash. Uh, with with very little seeming to come of it in terms of positive poll numbers. So another thing no, that these they've gained maybe a point or so on Trump over the last year. Yeah. yeah. After after spending two hundred thousand dollars per day for the past like four months. Another thing that these financial disclosures exposed is uh, DeSantis's heavy dependence on high contributors. So just just about 15% of fundraising contributions came from donors who gave less than $200. And the vast, vast majority of DeSantis's money has come from donors who gave the legal maximum of $3,300 yeah. in the primary, which also means that those who gave that can cannot contribute any more money either. So he's running out of people that are actually able to fund his operation. Yeah, um, and it's it's worth noting he does have a super PAC. You are not limited yeah. in how much you can donate to a super PAC, but super PACs cannot spend money on the same things as general campaign funds, Right. Like you, there are limitations in what you can use that on. So this is actually a logistical problem for him that he has maxed out his donor base. Yeah, and the um, the New York Times has reported that future like large prospective donors have been spooked by DeSantis's sliding poll numbers, and they may be less willing to invest in what's looking like a losing battle. Uh, so, to combat these swelling campaign expenses, including $279,000 at the Four Seasons in Miami, uh, DeSantis's Tallahassee-based campaign has began undergoing uh, massive cuts to campaign staff this past week. Uh, pr previously, DeSantis had upwards of 90 people on payroll, but just this month, they've eliminated 38 jobs in a variety of departments, cutting more than one-third of his payroll. 
DeSantis's cutbacks are nearly equal to the size of Trump's entire 2024 campaign staff. DeSantis's campaign manager, Granera Peck, said in a statement, I believe uh, late last week, quote, following a top to bottom review of our organization, we have taken additional aggressive steps to streamline operations and put Ron DeSantis in the strongest position to win this primary and defeat Joe Biden. So th- that was a, that was a, their little statement accompanying the news of uh, firing almost 40 people from their campaign. Uh, according to the New York Times, advertisers are, quote, promising to reorient the DeSantis candidacy as a, quote unquote, insurgent run. Uh, and remake it into a quote-unquote leaner, meaner operation. So this is the new strategy that they're trying to do is instead of having 90 people on staff in a largely ineffectual strategy, uh, have a more insurgent run with a smaller number of people. Um, But uh, in addition to the dozens of staff members who've been let go this July, two senior advisors have also departed this month to work for an outside pro-DeSantis nonprofit. One of these senior advisors, who was supposed to oversee the campaign's television messaging, voluntarily left, quote, as the reality of a disappearing advertising budget set in. So these these two more more kind of seasoned Republican uh, ad, uh, advisors saw what was happening in the campaign, and th- they're still pro-DeSantis, but they believe they can be more effective by working from outside of the actual campaign. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> Which is not a great sign for DeSantis's uh, internal internal team here. If you have people le- like who still like you, but they just can't work for you because you're doing such a bad job. Uh, so DeSantis's team is now telegraphing a plan to engage uh, with mainstream media that in a way that they have not previously done because they've he's so far kind of scornfully avoided it as we've talked about previously um and they're calling this new strategy the desantis is everywhere approach which is jesus christ bad name for strategy the part of the problem garrison i don't know how to like i can't like prove this the way that we prove you know when we're when we're tracing back the ideological roots of like a lot of our modern fascists but um what i what i believe in my heart is that so many of these the very young people on the extreme right who are who are driving this campaign like just want to be villains from a bad late 90s early 2000s movie sure. like they want to be they want to be the bad guy <laughs> Uh, in like a fucking super villain, hero movie, right? Like this—that's you don't you don't say that about a guy who's good. Like this, you would like the Biden campaign if they came to Joe and were like, "We want to do a Biden is everywhere thing." He'd be like, "No, that sounds kind of creepy, guys. Like I already got a little bit of a problem with that. <laughs> what with the hair sniffing? I don't really want to. I don't really want to jump on that train." Yeah, no, like it definitely has the vibes of like Zoomers who grew up watching like late '90s animated yeah. superhero cartoons who are trying yes, to like yes, <laughs> we're trying to like emulate that for some reason. There is one one really funny quote from the Times that that I will read um, because oh, it, yes. because it quotes like internal sources mm-hmm. that I that I don't, I don't have access to. But anyway, uh, quote one person close to Mr. DeSantis who requested anonymity to speak candidly about a candidate whom the person still supports said the governor had experienced, quote-unquote, a challenging learning curve that has left him, quote-unquote, a little bit jarred. So... You make me sound like a six-year-old who's, like, not quite progressing fast enough in the reading where they're like, maybe we need to try teaching him another way. Like, we'll we'll get out the different colored books. Like... (sighs) 
Yeah, so he's he seems to have a, a, a rough adjustment period to campaigning in just more than one state um, and having an actual, like, opponent to go up against. And also, like, an, an opponent who's, like, actually a good, like, who's, like, good at being, like, a politician. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, uh, a challenging learning curve indeed. Um, I, I might, I might specify. I think actually, DeSantis is a lot better at being a politician than Donald Trump. Um, but that's not what the competition well, is. Well, yeah, De- DeSantis is better at being like an effective like governor. Uh, he's, he's, he's le- better. He's, he's better at the machinery of politics. Yes, yes. Whereas Trump is better at holding power within the GOP. Yeah, and being like a yeah. showman. Yeah. So we will we will talk more about some uh, some actually relatively breaking news regarding the DeSantis campaign. Shortly, oh, I'm excited for this. I just saw this before we got on short shortly after this ad break. OK, we are we are back. So a lot has happened the past two days. A lot has happened the past two hours, actually. Uh, but we're gonna ha- we're gonna have to work our way there. Um, the The first bit of news that was kind of both it was both um uh confirming my suspicions um and and very a very interesting piece of news in the first place is that um that fast wave inspired kind of homophobic pride month video that we talked about in in, in our last desantis uh, fast wave episode um it turns out to uh be slightly more self-inflicted than what than what uh at least i i said in the episode because i didn't want to make claims that i couldn't back up um because we have we have some new new information regarding this video, uh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote from uh, this this article in the Times. Quote: A DeSantis campaign aide had originally produced the video internally, passing it off to an outside supporter to post it first and making it appear as if it was generated independently, according to a person with knowledge of the incident. Unquote. So this video turned out to be actually be made in house. This actually was made by someone who was working for Ron DeSantis, as uh, as we speculated initially, um, but we couldn't really like say for sure because it was it was posted first on a third party like yeah, account. Specifically, um, the guy who was the one who shared it is the dude who made it. Uh, no, that is that is for this next video we're going to talk about. Yeah, um, the 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 oh, homophobic sorry, sorry, sorry. one yes. was was shared by this. This this pro DeSantis account called Proud Elephant, um, who had a corresponding Telegram channel. This was the guy who posted the first homophobic meme one. Uh, but yeah, so we we found out Sunday night that it was actually made by someone at at the DeSantis campaign, which kind of uh, 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 justified a lot of our suspicions about DeSantis employing a staff of Zoomers who don't actually understand how to win a political election or, and are more interested in just creating so fascist funny. memes. Um, which is seems to be not a very effective strategy for DeSantis so far. So, again, just uh, the, the day that this news broke, that that the video was actually made in-house, another Fashwave-inspired video, but with much, much more overt Nazi imagery, was shared online by a DeSantis campaign staffer. Um, I'm uh, Robert, have you seen this video? Yes. Okay, so yes, I'm the Sonnen Rad video. Yes, so I, we we don't we don't have to watch it here, but I I will I will uh, give a description of it for for the people listening because also we should, probably shouldn't be sharing these things like everywhere on, on on like Twitter and stuff anyway. Like it's not it's not a great idea, but it yeah, is, you, but it, it's not gonna make you happier or help you in any way to see this. It's just like um, 
it's surprising. I will say that I was surprised to see how fashy it was, to see how like explicitly accelerationist mass yeah. shooter fashy it was. Yes, like absolutely. this is like Christchurch kind of yes. shit. Uh, yeah. So we're we're not going to share it, but it but it is useful to know what's in it. So I I, I did write a write a pretty in depth description of this video here. So. This video was posted on Sunday, July 23rd. It's about 70 seconds long. It, it, it plays over a Meg Myers cover of the song Running Up the Hill. Which uh, was made, you know, re- wait, isn't that the one? That was the one that um, the, the new season of Stranger Things a while back, like brought back to, to the mainstream. Possi- it, it's, it, it's a, it is a Kate Bush original. This yeah, one is, yeah, a, yeah. Is, a, is a more like electronic cover of the song. Yes. Um, it's talking about like, you know, like a, like a, a trying to like, ask God to help you with certain things, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, uh, it starts with the Doomer Wojak sitting at a computer looking at headlines about the ineffectiveness of Trump's border wall, unfulfilled anti-immigration policies, and Trump's pro-COVID vaccine statements. So uh, I guess we should probably talk about what a Wojak is in case someone is unfamiliar. If, if you've ever spent any, t- any amount of time on the internet, you've probably seen memes with kind of crudely drawn, like, human faces and heads these are called wojack memes they're 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 very popular in like political spheres uh they kind of kind of rose to prominence on 4chan and spread spread out from there everyone kind of uses them nowadays they're pretty common but there's a few specific like wojack characters like uh, the chad is one one of the more popular ones is the doomer wojack which is Someone who's uh, taken the black pill, so to speak. They've 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 looked at modern society and have decided that it's not worth engaging in. Now, there's this there's doomers on the right. There's doomers on the left. There's doomers who look at like climate change and the acceleration of like of 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 capitalism and just decide, hey, this is this is too far gone. So they become a doomer and they're on the left. There's also doomers on the right who are like looking at gay marriage and the acceptance of trans people to be like, oh, this is so socially degenerate. It's the society's too far gone. Um, and then they become a doomer and, but they're on the right. So it's, it, it, it happens on, it happens on both sides when both, both sides use doomer memes. Uh, this one is, uh, because we're talking about it in this context of fashion wave, this is obviously a fascist doomer meme. Um, but that's, that's kind of what I mean when I say there's, there's a doomer Wojak sitting, sitting at a computer. It's like, it's like a guy with a beanie, like a scruffy beard. He looks like very depressed and tired, that sort of thing. So, um, as as these kind of headlines about Trump's not conservative enoughness are flashing on this computer, the Doomer Wojak is looking increasingly uh, disillusioned and apathetic. Uh, then there's the clip of Trump holding up a pride flag uh, that that plays right before we see Trump signing the First Step Act, the 2018 Criminal Justice Reform Bill. Uh, then headlines flash about violent criminals being released into the streets, that sort of thing. So the Doomer Bojack is looking at all these things about Trump, looking more and more depressed, when suddenly a doorway appears with an almost angelic light pouring in from behind. And as the door opens, we see a silhouette of Ron DeSantis. More short clips of Ron play. And now the Wojak is looking happy, almost like exuberant. 
seemingly kind of random images of outer space, volcanoes, rocket launches, surfing, and the beach flash quickly on screen with with uh, with like glitchy silhouettes of Ron DeSantis looming above coastal oceanside cities that are lit up by a sunset. Uh, a don't tread on Florida alligator flag spins onto screen like it's a fucking like MS Paint like edit. Um, and uh, then the the video flashes more clips of DeSantis wearing sunglasses standing in front of American flags as the sunset happy Wojak fades in. So this is another Wojak meme of somebody almost like teary eyed with like contentment staring into the horizon as like a sunset is behind their head. It kind of it kind of reminds me of like the um, that guy who who stole that plane in Seattle and yes. crashed oh. it. Yeah, very sad story. If you're not aware of it, a man hijacked, I believe it was an Alaska Airs flight a couple of years back. It was empty. Like he he worked at the airport. He just took the plane and he got up into the sky and then like he was just kind of a dude who was sort of suicidal. There's very sad audio of him talking to because yeah. he, he gets on with air traffic control and he makes sure that he's not going to hurt anyone else. And like then the plane goes down, you know, he goes down in it and it's it's very bleak. He was not a man who wanted to hurt anybody. It's just this kind of like. Exist. I've heard. I found it set to a lot of vaporwave tracks. Actually, yeah, like yeah, the audio, no, yes, the conversation yes. between them. Yeah, because he's kind of. I think a lot of people identify with his sense of like. I don't really know why I was ever here. I don't really know. Yeah, what I, it's I'm it's doing, someone who's know? dealing like, with like yeah. postmodern absurdity, but in a way that like he doesn't want to like hurt anybody about it. But he just doesn't know what to do with existence. Yeah, he had um, part of he had like the the ten. 10% of what a mass shooter has, which is the, exactly I go out and I want to do something. But thankfully he was also a good person and didn't yes. want to like murder strangers. So this became very popular on the internet, including on Reddit and 4chan. This, he was, he, he was dubbed sky King. Um, yeah. and there's, there's footage of him basically crashing this plane as the sun is setting. And there's, there's footage of yeah. like him flying around in sunset played often played with vaporwave with his conversation with air traffic control. Now this is very popular. Um, the, the sunset happy Wojak is, is very similar. I, I, I've, I've seen people post this image in threads about sky King before. Um, and I think a, a, lot, a lot of people to understand is like this, this act that this, this sky King thing, this has more in common with like accelerationist, like terrorism than what most people can like really understand about like between like shooting a random person for like violent crime and this like this this is more this this is closer to why people do accelerationist like terroristic acts but this guy was like not actually a monster so he didn't do that he he like explicitly didn't want to hurt anybody he, he yeah he, he explicitly didn't want to try to land the plane at the airport because he thought he might hurt somebody yeah, um, and presumably since he worked at an airport, he had some knowledge of how easily that could go wrong. Yeah. So this anyway, the, these two images are kind of linked often on the internet. So anyway, we 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 see we see the video getting like more hopeful uh, with 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 Ron DeSantis, you know, having stupid fast wave having stupid fast wave imagery is this sunset happy wojack fades in as like as the doomer is now has like contentment uh, and, th and then this this then this is followed by very quick flashes of desantis and more 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 beach imagery there's a lot of beach in this video yeah um 
there's like this like rotating sheet of stickers that read make america florida um then we get this shot of a small yacht zooming through the water with desantis campaign events played over top of the water and during this shot we have another wojack holding a rifle wearing uh camo military fatigues that slides onto screen he has a patch of the flag of florida on his plate carrier and his helmet we get more shots of beachfront cities and rocket launches, followed by headlines about DeSantis on a variety of topics, including his anti-immigration actions, his use of Florida's National Guard in other states, uh, oh. DeSantis's anti-diversity initiatives, his anti-education bills, his anti-drag bills, the cancellation of pride parades in Florida, and uh, in general, just kind of how DeSantis has been pushing Florida further right. So after after this barrage of headlines, we get to the like most mask off moment of the video. The flag of Florida fills the screen with two lines of armed troops at either side marching towards the flag. A still photo of DeSantis is center frame with his head right in the middle of the seal of Florida, which is on the center of their state flag. The head in front of the seal creates this almost like halo effect around DeSantis's head. And then the seal turns into a spinning Sonnenrad as we zoom into the symbol as troops march into center, and then the video ends. The Sonnenrad is on screen for about 10 seconds. So this was a pretty upsetting thing to see on Twitter. Uh, yes, upsetting is one way to phrase it, yeah. <laughs> and again, the, the Sonnenrad has a long history. It's kind of a, a specifically occultic version of the swastika um, it reached, it has been around for quite a while, but it's most recent, the kind of thing that brought it into modern prominence was the Christchurch shooter chose it as the cover of his, uh, manifesto and also wore a son and rat. I believe it was on the chest of his plate carrier when he carried out his massacre. He also had a couple on his gun, I think. Yeah. So it's very clearly a Nazi symbol. I know there's some people have make it make jokes about how this must have just been an Azov battalion reference. D deeply unserious. No, you um, can see some of these on Azov. I mean, again, oh, if yeah, you want to yeah, make yes, the case yes, that this like, is a Nazi thing, they wear this too. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And they, uh, Azov yeah. uses it. There's people yeah. trying to excuse the use of the sun in red by saying, oh, it's just an Azov symbol. No. It's not a Nazi thing. No, <laughs> which is, they're which bad is, and this is bad. Which yeah. is a deeply unserious thing to say. Um, yeah. So, yeah, this video was shared by at least one campaign staffer. It's a very short video, but it plays into a strain of, like, accelerationist propaganda tropes that even the, the previous Fashway video didn't, didn't even really have in many of the same ways. Uh, like, like all, of, all of, like, the Doomer Wojak slowly becoming, like, happy and content then putting on military fatigues to go fight for Ron DeSantis, who's now in the center of, like, a haloed... Sonnenrad, like it's it's it is emulating a type of meme that both gained popular in order to specifically like inspire mass shootings to happen, and also to like to get young depressed males to channel their depression into like fascism. It's it's it, it, it has a whole bunch of tropes. Like it's 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 really just like playing by the playbook. Um, so the video was first posted on the Twitter account Ron DeSantis fan cams. Which is a horrible sentence. Yeah. <laughs> the account is a few months old, but its uh -huh. visible posts only go back to June. Uh, they post a lot of videos, um, all in a very similar style, which leads you to believe that whoever operates the account must be making the videos themselves. 
Um, one video from the account plays clips of people describing DeSantis as fascist, edited together with clips of, De of DeSantis deploying National Guard and calling for a civilian state military force under his control, uh, all sliced together next to footage of Nazis and Mussolini played over an upbeat EDM track. So it's all like explicitly fascist stuff. Like, like, like it's people like rev, like it's like, uh, proud, proudly embracing the fascist label. So this style of video is almost identical to the homophobic Pride Month video that we discussed last week. And considering uh, the recent news that the other video shared by the DeSantis Warham account was secretly made by a campaign staffer, that led uh, myself and others to assume that this Sonnenrad video was most likely made by the same person inside DeSantis's campaign and was operating this DeSantis fan cam account as a sock puppet. Um, but you know, I I could not prove this myself. Really, I it's just it's it's a it's a hard thing to kind of backtrack. This I this account was pretty clean in terms of like I I tried to like you know do do pretty pretty basic OSINT on this account, but it's it was it was I, I could not find out much about it. Um, but uh, the the campaign staff member that first shared this Sonnenrad video to his own Twitter account was former National Review writer Nate Hockman. Uh, we will we will talk about Nate Hockman's exploits shortly shortly after this this hat break. All right, we are back and in a in a much better position currently than twenty five year old Nate Hockman. Yes. So really was a tragically was a promising career. You know what? Let's give him another chance, Garrison. Re I, reach out to Nate. We can we can I, bring him on the team. You know, have him start making some videos for us. Yeah, I'll uh I'll bill an invoice to Nate Hawkman's address. I'll, yeah. I'll see where he lives. So 25-year-old Nate Hawkman has been working as a speechwriter for DeSantis' campaign after rising to prominence among young conservatives for his online references and willingness to entertain ideas outside the Overton window. Uh, <laughs> Hawkman hosted a Twitter space late last year centered around the question of if white supremacists like Nick Fuentes should have a place in the modern conservative movement. Fuentes himself appeared in the Twitter space, and Hockman thanked him for radicalizing children by saying, quote, You've gotten a lot of kids based, and we respect you for that. And he also said that Fuentes, quote, is probably a better influence than Ben Shapiro on young men who might otherwise be conservative, unquote. So, uh, Hawkman has retweeted the DeSantis uh, fan cam account at least six times before he shared the Sonnenrad video this past Sunday, but he's not the only DeSantis-linked account to share these videos. The campaign's War Room Twitter account and the pro-DeSantis Never Back Down Super PAC have also shared videos from this Ron DeSantis fan cam Twitter account. By using this fan cam account to post videos, and then by retweeting uh, on Nate's account, Someone was certainly testing the waters to see how close the DeSantis campaign can get to, to like just doing explicit Nazi shit. And considering the New York Times, who Hawkman has written for, by the way, uh, basically confirming that the person who made the Pride Month video was secretly employed by DeSantis and posted via third party to get some distance from the official campaign, uh, this led many to suspect that Hawkman was secretly the person behind this fan cam account due to the similarities in video styles and his frequent boosting of the account. 
The Sun and Red video was deleted the same day it was posted, and the fan cam account has not posted since then. But then suddenly, just a few hours ago, as of time of recording, news dropped that Nick Hockman has been fired from the DeSantis campaign, and the sources at Axios confirmed that he has in fact secretly been making these Fashway videos. So it was it was Hockman on all along. Uh, this is this is what happens when you hire a twenty five year old groiper to work on your to work on your presidential bid. Your very um, serious presidential campaign. Yeah. So uh, the Descendants campaign officially has only said a few words on the subject. Quote: Nate Hockman is no longer with the campaign, and we will not be commenting on him further. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not that easy guys <laughs> but other anonymous sources have confirmed to news outlets that it was Hawkman who was making these videos so this is weird because like this hasn't been a great move for DeSantis hiring Hawkman having Hawkman do all this like behind the scenes like Scooby-Doo shit of like posting fas- fascist videos on sock puppets to then get reboosted by DeSantis's campaign like it's it's all it's all very like dark but like comical like it's it's silly like um uh similar to the descendants video we talked about in the last adventures in fashwave episode this video it was not meant to like convince older trump supporters to vote for desantis right like th- that's not the intention of posting this video no um this new video they're trying is, to they, they are first off going for the zoomer vote Always a mixed bag. Always anytime a bad you're going call. for the youth, yeah. Anytime you're going for the youth vote, this is like famously a difficult thing. It kind of sometimes works for the Dems because the youth tend to be pretty progressive, and the Republicans are terrifying. Yeah. Um, but going for the trying to base your campaign as a Republican presidential candidate on the youths is a uh, quite a move. Yeah, like Bold. it's. Let's see how it pays off for him, Cotton. Yeah, because like. This new video is almost more chronically online than the last one. Uh, like, n- not even considering the Nazi imagery, it's it's heavy use of Wojak memes is just like cartoonish to the median voter. Uh, yeah. What this video is trying to do is signal to self-described fascists that DeSantis is their guy, and trying extremely desperately to create another like meme magic moment, like we had in 2016, to recruit a slew of teenage Nazis to try and meme another based president into office, which isn't going to work this time around because it's not 2016 anymore. Like we we we've we've already been ex- we've already been inoculated to some degree to this to this style of uh of campaign tactics all of all of the all the people on like like 4chan isn't the thing that it used to be it is it is it is a shell of its of its former self um but like what we have here on like the DeSantis side is like in terms of hiring people like Hawkman, right? These are like seasoned groipers who grew up and are now like getting into their 20s. Uh, you know, they're taking jobs at National Review and as and as campaign staffers. But due to their isolated niche political upbringing, they have deluded themselves into thinking that there is like a mythical far right youth voting block that just like quite simply doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So you can spend all day making and retweeting these meme heavy videos with Nazi imagery that really only succeed in turning off the reliable boomer Republican voters. Um, 
Now, like, there's a few other, you know, future scenarios here. If these, if these, like, up-and-coming Groypers continue to, like, grow up, polish their act, take more jobs as staffers or on Capitol Hill, and, like, slowly grow in numbers as they learn to, like, hide their power level, aka, like, hide their amount of racism uh, then we might have a problem if they like actually like put like intentionality into a long-term strategy to like put more of these young freaks into positions in washington um but we're simply not there yet like in the case of hawkman he kind of just like he blew up the spot right like he yeah. he, he he went like the- he went too hard too fast and then he got fired because th- they don't want yeah. that shit yeah, the olds are going to watch this and go like, what the fuck is this? This does not look serious. This is not speaking to my issues. This is just like off-putting and strange. And most young people are going to be like, oh, it's some brain-poisoned 4chaner. That's who this guy is running as? Yeah. The 4chan candidate? Yep. All right. No. <laughs> like... <laughs> So the other fear is that they'll shift from like this electoral focus um, and try to just use this type of video propaganda to initiate another wave of like Nazi mass shootings like in 2018. Um, the the halo effect around DeSantis's head is certainly cause for concern, but there's a lot of other factors that go into that sort of thing. And that is kind of just more of like an ever-present fear that anti-fascists have. Um, and, you know, people do a lot of work into trying to catch these guys before they actually do mass shootings and try to try to isolate the spread of this style of propaganda for that very reason. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's it's a certainly an interesting trajectory. When I started, like, finishing this episode earlier today, I had no idea that Hawkman was going to get fired. Uh, I had no idea that it was going to be confirmed that Hawkman was the one making the, making these videos. So that's kind of some breaking news on our side it's it's been a few days if you're if you're listening to this at the end of the week i'm going to read out one tweet from this guy a double doink who who is a stupid stupid handle no offense but he made a made a made a made a pretty good point here i am quote i think desantis's real problem isn't just that he's racist it's that his campaign is racist in the same way a really annoying teenager is your average xenophobic suburbanite dad looks at a Sonnenrad Wojak ad like his son crashed his car. A lot of people are arguing that your average 56-year-old Trump supporter isn't as racist as your average DeSantis-supporting Zoomer, but that's not the point. Putting weird blood-and-soil shit in your ads smells. It's deeply uncool to the exact people that you want to impress. Unquote. And, and I'll add, it's 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 deeply uncool to the exact people you want to impress if you want to win at being president and, and like are trying to move over Trump voters. It's just it's just it's just not going to play. Um, so no. this is this is the state of the DeSantis campaign now. They've they've shed almost 40 people from their staff. The guy that was supposed to lead their television ads has left. Um, they seemingly just have no idea what the fuck to do. They they tried to have this guy do this like backdoor Nazi video sock puppet strategy that has also resulted in not very good things for this for the DeSantis campaign. Um, so I guess we'll, we'll we'll see how their how their campaign develops if they if they continue this sort of like fast wave rhetoric and style. I kind of doubt it now that now that now that Hawkman is out. Um, but yeah, it's just been a certainly, uh, certainly an interesting, interesting few months here or a uh, few weeks here, rather, in terms of and, fast yeah. wave videos resurfacing again for the first time in quite a while in terms of like mainstream political use. 
Yeah, I'm kind of suspecting that this might be the death knell of that as a, uh, at least for a, a spell as a as a relevant form of uh, propaganda. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been in some ways, re- like, internally rejected at the DeSantis campaign, and he is arguably the most fascist mainstream well, candidate that they that we like have right now nothing puts a stink on stuff like this like failure right you know these guys these guys are not anarchists and the the anarchists are we we, we nearly always lose so there's this <laughs> there like because things fail you know that like there's a lot of spanish civil war you know iconography and stuff that's still very relevant on that chunk of the left um but with the right, it is all about power. And when something like this fails, when it actually weakens a campaign, when it weakens the insurgent right, when it makes them less able to exert power, um, yeah, I kind of feel like we we may have seen the last of uh, this as a thing that matters, right? Yeah, I'll definitely be watching these next few months, but yes. I think that's that's definitely a very, a very fair uh, assessment at this point. Lastly, I just want to clarify one thing about our last episode uh, due to some viewer feedback. So last time we were talking about how the Biden administration's use of dark branded memes had like inadvertently led to Fashwave taking a big body blow. Now, I think some people uh, misinterpreted our discussion as downplaying anti-fascists and leftists attempt to disrupt dark mega and fashion wave in general by uh, like proliferating the satirical dark branded memes. So in the episode, we talked about the methodology behind this this uh, this strategy of like normies seizing onto memes and aesthetics, thus making them cringe and unattractive to the niche groups that they that that once enjoyed using them. Um, with with Dark Brandon, there was certainly an attempt from anti-fascists and leftist posters to appropriate Fashwave's aesthetics with the hope that if spread widely enough, it would disarm some of Fashwave's more dangerous and inspirational aspects. But you can't really force mainstream like virality. This kind of thing works best when it appears natural. And for the majority of dark Brandon posters, they were just doing this shit for like shits and giggles. Like that 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 was the primary factor is that it was funny. Um, and no effort to damage Fashwave's legibility would really be successful without mainstream liberal spread. A small group of leftists could meme like eternally, but until it breaks through that bubble, it would have little to no effect. Uh, Now, because of how Twitter's algorithm worked during the summer of last year, after a few months, Dark Brandon did in fact break through to to the liberal mainstream. But I've seen nothing to suggest that the White House staff had any intention of trying to damage Fashwave's legibility by sharing yeah. laser eye memes in I, August of 2022. I, I think the key here is that you are not saying uh, this was purely the result of liberals accidentally like jumping onto this, but that the primary the, like success was achieved, like the part of the success that was achieved as a result of this going like mainstream among Biden supporters was accidental. Y- and yes. that was the part that was key. Not not saying that the people who recognize this and were putting in the background work to try to push this stuff um, and make it, you know, eventually go viral. That was certainly not accidental, but the, Correct. the, the part that the liberals played was an accidental part in killing this. That's That's yeah. the point. Yes, because yeah. what I what I mean by accidental is that when Dark Branded started in March of 2022, 
there was no way to guarantee that four months later the white and uh, like the White House and blue wave liberals would, would be sharing these memes on mass. Like I I remember conversations I had like last August when liberals were seemingly like ruining the the funny dark branded memes. Uh, but like me, uh, like myself and research colleagues during this time, like that was when like we realized that if. Like, if liberals keep sharing these cringy memes, we might actually have a shot at killing off a fash wave. So, so yes, this was to not discount the efforts of anti-fascists or others who pioneered the spread of Dark Brandon and their attempts to insert it into greater public consciousness. Uh, but I think to frame this as like a meticulously planned psyop from the very start is is also kind of inaccurate um, in a in like a very like spotlighted way. Like this was this was a collaborative effort with uh, with the with the liberals not realizing the degree that their collaboration <laughs> played in this yeah. like larger game of trying to disarm fascist um aesthetics and like meme styles. So yeah, that's one one clarifying note as we hopefully wrap up this DeSantis Fashwave saga for the time being. Cause I definitely did not plan on making this episode when I when I finished recording last week with you. So here we are. Cool. All right. That's the episode. That's the episode. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. It is happening here. The thing that's happening here is fucking child labor. I am I am deeply angry <laughs> this episode. Um this is it could happen here. I'm your host, Mia Wong, and with me is Shireen. Hi Mia. I'm so glad to join you on this really uplifting episode. Yeah, it's gonna be great. So yes. 
All right. Uh, as anyone who studied like even a little bit of labor history knows, the, the the fight over child labor is very, very old. It is it's one of the first causes that sort of liberal reformers to capitalism took up in the early 1800s. Like mm-hmm. it's like in the Communist Manifesto was one of the things. It's actually it's one of the things people point out is like, oh, we've done all the things that was in the original Communist Manifesto. And it's like, no, no, we never got rid of this. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's also one of the things that like you get these sort of like capitalist triumphalist accounts that like oh we eliminated child labor this is like this is proof the system works yeah. no it, it this the, the battle over child labor is a battle that we are in the middle of losing we are losing it in in worse and worse ways every day so okay so why 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 are we why are we dealing with a new resurgence of child labor in this country um there's there's a lot of reasons. One of the big problems is that vast swaths of the U.S. sees child labor as morally good. Mm. Um, you know, they see it as something like, oh, this is like you teach your kids. This right. is like how you, yeah, this is like how they grow up like, and get responsible. And yeah, yeah. And, this, and this is true in a lot of parts of the world. It's also completely and absolutely bonkers. Mm-hmm. It is it just it's just nuts. Like people shouldn't think like this. It's incredibly weird. And the other thing that you get a lot is like, there's, you know, there, there's sort of like different versions of like more or less socially acceptable child labor, right? So like, I think most people agree if you're not running the business that like children shouldn't be working in like slaughterhouses or whatever. Yes. But, you know, there's like lots of things that people are like, oh no, kid working in a restaurant. Like that's completely fine. Like, it, oh, it's like a, like a 14 year old is like doing farm work on a farm like that's fine but it's a slippery slope right because it starts yeah. with farm work and then trickle trickle, and also, trickle down also to, like I, yeah. I i i would argue that that's also not fine because what's what's essentially happening here is that there's this basically like this sort of family loophole to people's understanding of child labor where like as long as child labor is being done by like the family as an economic unit instead of like capitalist directly yes. like ah, it's fine it's like no no it's not it's actually not fine to be working people like be a child and then working for a living for your family like that's not yeah. okay it yeah i think okay. it, there's a difference between i think there's a difference between like child labor and like working like in a field for your family versus like a chore you know what i mean like yeah yeah it's i think i think that line gets blurred and uh, people see their kids as much more mature than they are and like able to like, no, I, 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 I understand what you're saying. And I think I agree. I think I agree. Yeah. And it's, I don't know. It, it sucks. This has a lot of sort of knock on effects. One, one of the big knock on effects this has, and this is, this has been a thing for like the entire history of child labor, right? Is that like capitalists use children as a way to drive down wages for everyone else. And this, if, you know, mm-hmm. if you've ever listened, argued with someone about the minimum wage, right? One of the big arguments about the minimum wage is that like, oh, well, it's like it's like kids get the minimum wage. So like it's fine. It's like one, it's not like children are not morally worth less and their labor is also not worth less than an adult. Like like if you're going to exploit them like this, like, yeah, like things are the same price for everybody. It's not like less for a child. Yeah, it's not it's not like like a kid is like somehow less of a human being than an adult. Right. Like this is this is this sucks. But, you know, it's it's used to sort of hold down wages directly through things like like opposing minimum wage increases used to hold, you know, hold down wages sort of indirectly because – and this is another – the reason like capitalists love child labor is that uh, ch- children are, you know, e- like they're physically smaller than adults. They're easier to control. They have less social power mm-hmm. and 
because you know because of that you can pay them less and because of you know and because because people just in our society don't fucking like kids and because of that it's so it's it's just socially acceptable to just pay them less all all those reasons you listed are absolutely terrifying though like oh they will listen oh they're smaller oh they're like cheaper or whatever it is like they're all like terrible reasons to justify child labor it's absurd no they're not good they're not good and yet however comma it it still persists it has persisted it's very old um i'm gonna read something from the bureau of labor statistics about this fucking kid who was working in a mine what okay Okay, uh, this is this was this is from the early 1900s Mm-hmm. One boy touchingly recounted his attitude towards facing the day at the mine this way. I'll always think of my poor blind father and my mother at home, and I won't never play with the boys at all. And then the cracker boss won't have to beat me like he does the others. This boy was nine years old. While stories like these produced outrage in many quarters, in the coal-producing regions there is no such concern. The view that, quote, the little devils like it, as one coal boss put it, seemed to be the prevailing sentiment. Child labor wasn't discussed in these regions because it wasn't seen as an issue. So this is wow. like 1900s American view, like early 1900s American view on this, right? Like people, by, by people, I mean capitalists and also people who are incredibly desperate and don't have enough money to get by, like love child labor. Um, there's, you know, it, it takes a long time for like an actual serious anti-child labor campaign to like get started in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And of course... The, the exact people who you would expect to oppose banning child labor, oppose banning child labor. Uh, I'm going to read yeah. this from the um, also from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The chairman of the National Association of Manufacturers said about a law to abolish child labor, quote, this union, this labor union plot against the advancement and happiness of the American boy is a ploy is also a ploy against individual industrial expansion and prosperity in this country. So this is what their thing is. Their, their argument is that is that children don't oppose child labor. This is this is being foisted upon them by outside agitator labor unions. And also, uh, uh, if we're not allowed to use child labor, if we're not allowed to have a nine year old be put in a mine, uh, uh, the the entire American economy will collapse and every manufacturer will go broke. It's like making you like being like child labor because patriotism. Like that's basically what that means. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 genuinely terrible. Like I I I don't know. It's so ghoulish. Like Ameri- like companies today have figured out how to do this PR thing of like, oh, we don't condone child labor. We crack down on it very seriously. We also hire children literally all the time, but it's fine. Mm-hmm. We're just we're gonna like you know. But but back in like the eight hundreds, they hadn't really figured that out yet. And yeah. so you know, th- there's there's a sort of reform movement that happens, and one of the sort of key moments of this reform thing is the Lawrence tech t- textile strike, and this strike is probably. Most famous today for popularizing the slogan, we want bread and roses, too, which mm-hmm. is, you know, like rung down the halls of labor and socialist histories, like the names of newspapers, songs, poems, and also like being the namesake of a truly dog shit DSA caucus. Um, we're not going to talk about this strike enormously here. The short, the very, very short version of this strike, and this, this is a 1912 strike. Um, the short version of it is that there's a law passed in Massachusetts that would have reduced like the number of hours that you could have women and children work from a blistering 56 hours to a leisurely 54 hours a week. Oh my God. <laughs> um, this prompted 
uh, the local capitalists to get so mad that they did this like massive like industrial speed up. So they forced everyone to work faster and then also docked everyone's pay for it. And wow. this, this this set off a strike, Um, which was relevant for like our story is that the workers at this plant, you know, there's there's lots of coverage of the fact that like most of these workers are immigrant women of like from a bunch of different places. Mm-hmm. Uh, the part of it that's not talked about as much is that another huge portion of the workers were just fucking children. Yeah, and, that definitely you know, at, seems to get glossed over. Yeah, yeah, and it's like I, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe we should go back to talking about that part because it's really important for like mm-hmm. the stuff we're going to talk about later in this episode that made me so angry. I was like physically punching my pillow. What happens next is that the police crack down on the strike. It's more and more violence. And as this goes on, the workers at like the adult workers at this plant decide, OK, we're going to like send the children who are like both the child workers and also like just people's kids to New York to keep them safe and also to make a political point. But like, hey, look, they're, they're running our children out of town. And this goes great. The first waves, of this go great for the children. Like a bunch of people in New York show up and are like, yay, hey, we'll take care of these kids. Like. And this makes like the officials in Lawrence be like, you have to stop this. It, it looks really bad for us. And so they they like assembled outside of the next train that was trying to leave and tried to stop them. Oh, my God. So here's the Bureau of Labor Statistics again. When the next group of children prepared to depart the train station, they were met by police and soldiers. The police refused to let them board the trains and launch an attack on the group. A seven-year-old was given a black eye when she was picked up and thrown into a paddy wagon by police. Another what? witness, another witness testified to children being thrown around like rags. Oh my Which, god! Like, yeah, thin blue line, baby. Let's fucking go. This is this is oh the thin. The cops god. are the thin blue line between order and chaos. That seven-year-old girl. Yeah, a seven-year-old wow. girl is not going to throw herself around, right? Like, someone has to beat up this children, and for that, there is the few, the proud, the American police. But they were scared for their lives, you know what I mean? Like, they're yeah, seven-year-olds. Yeah, that, that seven-year-old girl looked at me really aggressively. Yeah, I was scared for my life. That's what they said. <laughs> it's... It's, you know, it's a, this is bad. And like, you know, the, 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 the 1900s police can get away with like the 1900s police. We've talked about this in other episodes. Like they can get away with just like shooting people. Right. Like they mm-hmm. like they can they can show up to like a strike and just open fire into the crowd and it doesn't do anything. Uh, throwing around a bunch of children like rags. Finally, it turned out was the thing that was bad enough that it like started a congressional investigation. Wow. I guess that's good and bad. But Yeah. <laughs> So, so Congress launches this investigation and there's like four, this 14 year old immigrant girl named Camilla Tielli testifies about how she was working at the mill when a machine caught her hair and tore her scalp off. Ah! <laughs> the police promptly and this is going and OK, the, the police promptly arrested her dad, didn't do anything to the company and arrested her dad for lying about her age. Oh, my God. What? Now, this, uh, hold that one in your fucking mind, because we're going to come back to that shit. Do I have to? Okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, because it's <laughs> going to get so much worse when this episode is over. So the, the, the product of this is that there starts to be like a, a, a really mainstream push against child labor, which is, you know, a thing you would have thought would have started earlier, because, again, we're on like century two of child labor in the U.S. Mm-hmm. by this point. Right. Like in the in an entity called the United States. But, you know, apparently it, it, it takes this to actually make people go, wait, maybe this is bad. 
And the product of this is you get this thing called the Kenning Owen Child Labor Act, 1916. Now, as we sort of talked about earlier, right, the, the weakness of this law is that it, you know, it, it allows kids to be used as laborers, like inside of the family unit. So, like, if you're on a family, you know, and, and this is a very, very broad category, right? So, it's, you know, you, you can you can force your child to work as long as like you're their parent, mm. right? You're the one making the money off of them, and not like a capitalist. But even this, even this, is, is considered too strong of a law. And in 1918, the Supreme Court rules that it's unconstitutional to ban child labor. Wait, what? Yeah, they do <laughs> this multiple times. Multiple times. And I, 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 we really cannot emphasize this enough on this show. The Supreme Court is and has always been just one of history's greatest monsters. Like, yeah, they Wait, I was right then. Child labor does equal patriotism. That's basically yeah, what yeah. they're saying. So eventually, FDR gets into this giant fight with the Supreme Court. And the first child labor law we get, federal child labor law that gets that sticks, uh, like, doesn't happen till 1938 when FDR threatens to pack the court if the court refuses to fucking stop. I uh, stop saying that 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 the state that the state doesn't have the government doesn't have the power to regulate child labor. Wow, it's like literally less than a century ago. That is like yeah, yesterday. And, you know, but 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 at, you know, and this actually works, right? But but and this is a real problem, and this is a problem that we're gonna we're gonna talk about later in this fucking episode in the modern day. Those child labor laws don't get enforced. It doesn't of that act that actual the nineteen the nineteen thirty eight Fair Labor Act like basically doesn't actually do shit to like reduce the amount of child labor in the country. Mm. And here's the thing, like even now, even before all the horror show stuff that we're about to get to that's happening right now, like nah, kids, like we never actually dealt with child labor through like the law. Like we just basically outsourced, you know, okay. We had, we had to find someone whose labor is cheaper than like an American child. And we did. It's either like mechanization, other immigrants who like don't have legal citizenship status or just outsourcing, mm-hmm. and then you know we our kids still fucking do work. You know, like our like we they're like it's very common for ten and twelve year olds to work. It's just that it's usually like babysitting or like mowing lawns, and yeah. we, we've just, we've decided that like no, this is actually fine. Like it is actually fine to fucking put twelve year olds in a labor market. Yeah, I mean, I think most people today, anyway, I think the common person thinks that child labor happens like. In other countries over there. You know what I mean? I don't think they think yeah. America is still that archaic and stupid. Um, but yeah, it is. And, and oh my god, yeah. So uh, we need to take an ad break and then I, 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 I'm not even going to make a joke about the, our sponsors and child labor because like Jesus fucking Christ, this is about to be it so bad. But yeah, here's some ads. Okay, so... You know, we never really got rid of child labor, right? What we did basically was, to to some extent, we'd we'd been able to successfully decrease the severity of it. Um, and you know, in the last twenty years, there'd been a decline in what economists and I really cannot emphasize enough. This is the actual phrase they use: is child participation in the labor market. Wow, that's so yeah. vanilla of a way to say that. So return to present day. Uh, present day, the thing that's been happening in the last few months is that in a five-week span in this country, three children died, or I, you know, I would actually argue were killed by their employers on the job. Wow. Five children in, 
three children in five weeks. So That's sixteen these these were these wow. kids were all sixteen. Um sixteen year old Duven Thomas Perez got killed by machinery at a conveyor belt. Oh uh sixteen year old Will Hampton died working in a landfill, and sixteen year old Michael Scholes died working for a logging company. Um there have been other child labor deaths recently. Those are just sort of the most recent ones. And I wanna get in to the shit that's been happening because in the last really in the last eh, bit under like eight years things have gotten you know like the child labor situation in the u.s was never good and we'll talk about that later but like things have gotten so much worse there's been an almost a factor of four increase since 2015 in kids working illegally in hazardous jobs it's actually probably well it's unclear to me whether the numbers are actually worse than that. I don't know because I I I I think almost all of this these statistics are being undercounted, like dramatically mm-hmm. because the, the, the those numbers are just violate like violations that are caught. I'm gonna go into that a bit later, but meanwhile, like right now, Arkansas, Iowa, New Hampshire, New Jersey, and Vermont have already passed laws in the last two years that weaken restrictions on child labor, and bills are appearing like across the country to do fucking more of the same stuff. Like they want to allow 14 year olds to serve alcohol mm-hmm. in bars. Um, it's you know it is it is truly horrific, and it's being driven by restaurant business associations across the country who want to you know use child labor. And yeah. that's bad. The fact that there's more stuff that's that, you know, is on the horizon is not good. But for for an enormous number of people, regardless of what the law says, the situation is absolutely intolerable. Here's from The New York Times. In many parts of the country, middle and high school teachers and English language learner programs say it is now common for nearly all of their students to rush off to long shift after their classes end. They should not be working 12-hour days, but it's happening here, said Valeria Lindsay, a language arts teacher at Homestead Middle School near Miami. For the past three years, almost every eighth grader in her English learner program of about 100 students was also carrying an adult workload. So there's been a, a massive surge since 2021 in unaccompanied minors entering the U.S., and this this has been driven by a lot of sort of you know it's been driven by sort of pandemic pandemic driven poverty a, a massive upsurge of violence in a bunch of countries in Central America a lot of which has to do with a, like you know the the U S backed coup in El Salvador about a mm-hmm. decade ago uh you know there, there's a lot of stuff going on it's all very bad and it's been pushing people here I, but you know. It, like the, the 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 situation for immigrants getting into the U.S. is never good, but Biden specifically has managed to make it worse because Biden's sort of like Biden's immigration policy has been has been resting on getting kids out of shelters as fast as humanly possible and just like throwing them at literally anyone who claims to be a sponsor. Right. And you know. This has gone about as well as you would expect it would when someone like starts to, you know, the, the, one, one of the, the, I think it was the New York Times was talking about this woman who was working, who quit working in a, a health and human services like office because they had a quota of getting rid of 20% of their kids a week. And if they didn't do oh, it, they would a get quota? Dinged. Yeah, they had a quota for we need to get 20% of the kids out of the shelter every week. Wow. In In the last two years, they have lost track of a third of the kids they send out, which is Again, in the last two years alone, at least 85,000 children, they've just lost 
I don't fucking oh. know where they are. Um, here's some New York Times again. It's getting to be a business for some of these sponsors. And, and yet, Pasolacqua, who left her job as a caseworker in Central Florida last year, Miss Pasolacqua said she saw so many children put to work and found law enforcement officials so unwilling to investigate these cases that she largely stopped reporting them. Instead, she settled for explaining to the children that they were entitled to lunch breaks and overtime. Wow. Wow. And, you know, I want to make really clear what we're talking about here, right? This is not, you know, like, I, I, I don't think, like, you know, wh- whatever your position is on, like, whether, like, a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old should be working any job at all. We are talking about 12-year-olds working on factories. We are talking about 13-year-olds cleaning up the floors of slot, the kill floors of slaughterhouses. Um, we are talking about, like, we are, we, are, we are talking about 14-year-olds who are, like, literally making food that, like, you are eating. Yeah. Yeah. And we're still right. So th- this is this is happening in a large part because there's been a sort of like a, a, a giant surge in unaccompanied minors. Well, it turns out a lot of those minors are unaccompanied because the Biden administration wouldn't let their fucking parents into the country. <sighs> and, and this is where this is where we need to get into the fucking like the whole sort of like sex trafficking panic. Right. Because, you know, one of the things that, th- that this panic specifically about sex trafficking has covered up is that most human trafficking is not sex trafficking. It's almost all labor trafficking, almost all maybe too strong a word, but it's mostly by volume. Most mm-hmm. of it is, is, is labor trafficking, which nobody gives a single shit about because you know, there's no, you can't, you can't have a moral panic around like, let you can't have a moral panic around labor trafficking, like people who aren't white. And yeah. simultaneously, all the business groups who would normally fund these panics like love this shit because, you know, all of all of these capitalist ghouls drinking a thousand dollar bottles of wine on their thirty million dollar yachts. All of that shit is paid for by child labor. So, of course, they don't give a shit about it. In fact, they love it. And, the, the you know, the, the product of this is you have a bunch of fucking 12 year olds who are effectively in debt bondage, working 12 hours a fucking day in a slaughterhouse or a paper mill. I'm going to I'm going to read another thing for the New York Times, which is I I don't know. So many of these things are so depressing, but like I, I think this is the most depressing thing I've read. In this entire, I don't know, like in ages. I didn't get how expensive everything was, says 13 year old Jose Vasquez, who works 12 hour shifts six days a week at a commercial egg farm in Michigan and lives with his teenage sister. I'd like to go to school, but then how would I pay rent? 13. 13. You know, and, and of course, one of, you know, like the other thing about this, right, is these these are people dealing with the fucking American housing market, right? The American housing market is intolerable to, to adults who work full time, who work like full time jobs or multiple part time jobs, right? Mm-hmm. This is a 13 year old. How the fuck is a 13 year old supposed to be paying rent? Right. And, you know, and, and every every sort of additional thing just makes it worse because the more the more of these kids and one of one of the things that's happening is these kids are getting funneled into very specific areas. Right. Because they're getting they're getting funneled into like specific towns because those specific towns have a bunch of like have a bunch of companies who specifically want to hire these migrant kids. And when they do that, that fucking continually drives out the price of housing because all of these people are competing for the same like 
fucking one bedroom apartment for $1,600 a month, right? Yeah. And so every everything just sort of spirals in on each other. And, and until you get you get a fucking 13 year old working, working, fucking this is this is nine, nine, six. This is the fucking like thing I talk about in China is nine a.m., nine p.m., six days a week at a fucking egg farm in Michigan. In, you know, in in, in any just world, people would die for this in this world. And, you yeah. know, people have fucking died for this. It's a bunch of children who are dying on their fucking jobs. In this world, though, the people, you know, the people who died for this are children. And the Biden administration, again, is actively aiding fucking human traffickers by kicking all these kids out to their families, like kicking all these people out to just like fucking anyone as soon as humanly possible and not allowing these people's families into the country and then doing literally nothing at all to ensure that like the people who are fleeing into this country, like have a place to live or like any kind of reasonable job or any way to support themselves. You know, and we could we could fucking like there are there are individual people in the U.S. who benefit from this child labor who you could fucking like throw into a box tomorrow, take all of their money and you could fund this entire program There are individual people. Right. No one will fucking do it. They will let these kids they will let every single one of these kids die before a single billionaire has to fucking spend a single cent taking care of these kids. Meanwhile, the actual child laws that that exist in this, uh, uh, you know, that, that that exists in the U.S. are completely useless because regulatory agencies are taking one of two approaches: either they do nothing, or they spend some time investigating so they can get a cut of the child labor money by issuing a fine to the company. Oh, are you fucking kidding me? Is, it gets worse and worse. It just gets, it gets now, worse and worse. now, and and this is the fun part: merely taking a cut of the child labor money or doing nothing. Those are those might arguably be the best case scenarios because the other thing that happens, and the Washington Post has been talking, you know, did a very good report about this, is the other thing they do is you know either either they effectively enter the rev share agreement with the contractors who are hiring these fucking human traffickers, or they do raids. And the product mm-hmm. of these raids is you put is they put the families of the kids who are doing the child labor in prison or deport them. And then they do nothing about the actual, you know, so a lot of what's happening is this is happening to contractors, right? So they'll mm-hmm. find the contractor, the parent company, nothing will fucking happen. And the parents of these kids who also like cannot fucking survive and in a lot of cases are doing this because literally they do not have enough money to pay rent or buy food for their kids. Those people are getting fucking sent to prison are the only people, by the way, again, the only even even though all of these companies are systematically hiring children, they are getting children killed. The only people going to prison are the families of the fucking kids. I none, none of it makes sense. And it makes me I mean, I, I can't really recover from any of this episode. And I and, and I shouldn't. That is the reality. Um, but I just it, I, don't, I don't know. It's. It doesn't feel like billionaires uh, will ever lose, I guess, capitalism. My analysis of this is that any world that allows this to happen is intolerable and should be burned to the ground. Um, I agree. Oh, I agree. I think we're ready for the rapture. By that, I just mean like the sun exploding into us and everyone dying. Yeah, I'm going to read a bit more because, you know, the horror, the horrors never end. Here's in the Washington Post. 
The Grand Island teams had been hired to scour blood and fat from slippery, quote, kill floors using high-pressure hoses, scalding water, and industrial foams and acids, according to the Labor Department and federal court records. They sanitized electric knives, fat skimmers, and 190-pound saws used to split cow carcasses, according to court records. Some students, and again, when they say students, they're not talking about college students, they're talking about middle and high school students, suffered chemical burns and were so sleep-deprived after working their night shift, they dozed off in classes, according to a local prosecutor in court records. When, when asked about the children, like the actual kids who were supposed to be, you know, the ones being saved by these, by the fucking Department of Labor raids, the Department of Labor pulled a, it's not my department, and we're like, yeah, fuck it. We don't know what happened to these kids. Hope they're okay. Wow. Have fun. And th- there's one more part of this Washington Post article that I want to read just to sort of like, I don't know. I think I, th- I think the big problem with all of this coverage is that it's treating this problem as if it's new. Yeah. As if this is sort of like a unique product of like, oh, it's a tight labor market in the pandemic. And it's like, no, no, it's not. Here's from the Washington Post. <laughs> We have never in my memory found the types of violations that are being found in hazardous occupations, said David Wheel, a professor of social policy and management at Brandeis University, who was a top labor official in the Obama administration. It's outrageous. Now, this is bullshit. During Wheel's Obama administration, there was absolutely a shit ton of migrant workers and specifically migrant children workers doing a bunch of incredibly dangerous and hazardous work. It's just that they were mostly in agriculture. I mean, some of them were also in slaughterhouses, right? Like some of the shit was already happening. It's just nobody paid attention to it and it's gotten worse. But again, they were also just a shit ton of kids fucking like picking tomatoes in like 110 degrees in California. That was yeah. always happening. It was always fucking happening. Obama specifically made it worse because one one of the, again one of the things about using immigrant child labor is that you like if if you commit a labor violation against one of these against 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 again someone someone who is undocumented and a child what the fuck are they going to do about it right they yeah, can't go to powerless. the government if they go to the government they get deported yeah and They're, obama yeah the employers know that i mean employers yeah, quote yeah. Unquote, but like they know that they're uh, 100% controlled situation yeah and and obama fucking helped them do it because he deported so many people like Obama and this fucking guy probably also too directly was helping literally the worst abuses of this system happen over and over and over again. They were they were using, you know, immigration. One of the only other things you can notice about these stories is that if you if you look at the locations, right, most of the places where these not all, but a lot of the places where these are happening are very, very anti-immigrant southern border states. Hmm. These are southern states or border states. And the reason or 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 places or some places in the Midwest like Kansas or Nebraska. And a lot of the reason why this stuff happens here, right, is, you know, if, if you're if you're like uh, if you're a politician, right, if, and, you know, and your your allies are local business owners, you get you get you get to play this sort of like you get you get to play both sides of the of the fucking spectrum. Right. On the one hand, you get to you get to keep hiring a bunch of undocumented immigrants. And on the other hand, you you whip up this like enormous social hysteria about them so that all these people, you know, can can be more effectively disciplined and crushed. Right. And everyone fucking knows how this game works, right? Like all the all the people with any real power, like actually understand this. It's it's why it's why like the Justice Department or like you know all the, all the immigration agencies never go after the companies who hire people. They only ever go after the actual workers themselves. It's just so upsetting because like the most in their mind, like the most uh, helpful, like 
useful person is the person that has like the most to lose and they know that and use it against them for that reason yeah and it's just so it's just fucked up in every possible way i don't know yeah and it's also just a little silly like you said to just like think this just happened like this is something that has clearly been building to this you know what i mean i think anyone yeah. with a brain can figure that out because it, this kind of intricate system doesn't just like pop up in a year or two out of nowhere it's been building it on itself i don't know yeah it's like it, it yeah like I, like you're, you're definitely right it's, it's not it's not just like yeah it's been building for ages like it was just it was deliberately designed by this by people who like make a bunch of fucking money from it right they make yeah. slightly more money if they fucking force a 12 year old to clean the floor of a slaughterhouse than they do if they force like a 22 year old to do it and so they do That's, and the, the, the last so mad that makes me yeah. so mad yeah and the last thing that I want to sort of mention about this, right, is that a lot of these, a lot of the states where this stuff is happening, a lot of the states that are passing these laws are also states that are like simultaneously passing like enormous rafts of anti-trans legislation, uh, like as part of their so-called like protect the kids thing. And, you know, you can right. talk about the hypocrisy of it, right? But I, I think the important thing to understand here is that protect the kids was always racialized. Like they don't mm -hmm. give a shit about the kids dying in meatpacking plants because they aren't white. Right, they're yeah, immigrant kids not. who these freaks want to fucking kill anyways. And if those kids die in the job, nobody gives a shit, right? <sighs> so it makes it's it's upsetting also because the majority of these kids I don't want to say majority, I don't want to speak for anybody, but I feel like these kids also they need to work in their minds. You know what I mean? Like they're like, I have no other choice, no one's helping me. This is yeah, the only yeah. option I have. And it just becomes this like snake eating its own tail bullshit where it's just, I don't know. It's, there's no, there's no good out for them because yeah. no one's fucking helping them and their family's not there and they need to fucking survive. So it's this yeah. thing where it's like they're consenting to it in a, in a sick way. Like not because they, not because they're consenting to it because they want to, because they need to, to survive. And the people that are in power know that and take advantage of it. And I don't know, the lack of empathy across the board is just inhumane and disgusting, and I hate that. I don't know. That's that's all I have other than a general exhortation that, like, every single part of the system that produces this, the entire border regime, the U.S. labor regime, the regime, the sort of family regimes that this stuff relies on, like, all of it needs to fucking go, and we need to do it before another kid gets fucking killed on a factory floor. Yeah. I have a hard time not feeling like it's too big and it's I'm too helpless and and there's nothing to do. But I think stuff just raising awareness and not pretending this doesn't happen here or it just started happening. I think that's a good step in the right direction. I don't know. I think one way to look at it is that like there 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 have been regimes that are a lot more powerful and a lot sort of a lot more willing to kill that have been brought down and have collapsed and don't exist anymore. So, yeah. you know, as, as, as bad as everything looks on any given day, right? Like people, people have done this before. They'll do it again. And you know, it's at some, at some point they're like, we will hit a point where it's fucking too much. Yeah. It will cease to be. You're right. And our responsibility is to get everyone to that point.
Yeah. I think it takes longer when the like insidiousness or the evilness is more subtle, quote unquote. You know what I mean? Like when it's not so outright in your face, it's almost like it really takes longer to burn out. And we're just in that burning out phase. Yep. Well, glad I joined you for this. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this this is the make it happen here. Uh, Wage war against the capitalist system and the people who kill children for money. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.